I am Wendell B. Harris, Jr., and you are listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. It was Betty Davis who said, Hollywood is a plantation. Moss Hart said that Hollywood is the most beautiful slave quarters in the world. And, you know, I don't know how much you know about slavery, Andras, but, you know, the slaves do not actually get together and tell the master, uh, Massa, we've decided to uh, plant kumquats this season. Uh, not cotton. Uh, we just thought we'd let you know. Uh, you know, the slaves do not determine the agenda. The slaves carry out the agenda. The slaves produce, but they do not determine anything. And so when Betty Davis says Hollywood is a plantation and Moss Hart says it's, you know, the most beautiful slave quarters in the world, they are stating that the most visible, seemingly powerful actors, musicians, performers, influencers, you know, they are all slaves. You know, it's very difficult for people to, to look at Steven Spielberg or Michael Jackson or whoever and think of them as a slave. But they are not determining content. They are carrying out the cotton planting and the cotton harvesting. And, um, you know, I had made some comments to you previously about Stephen, but I wanted just to make clear that it's not just Stephen regarding not having absolute control over the content that you produce. But you know, we're talking about the entire uh, history of Hollywood, not to mention you know, the current state. When you talk about people like Robin Williams, Paul Robeson, Francis Farmer, Whitney mm. Houston, Judy Garland, these are all humongous stories of control, battling for control, and battling the slave color that everyone is assigned. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Wendell B. Harris. Junior! 
<laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your ho- I am one of your hosts. I am one of your hosts and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm one of your hosts and my name is Brian Connolly. Brian Connolly. <laughs> well, what are we here to do today, Brian? Uh, this is an exciting interview that you've been trying to get for a while, covering an uh, episode that we did like over a year ago, one of the first ones we did, I, I think. I think it's episode number 12. Wow. Yeah, early on for Chameleon Street. Yeah. Uh, and you got the the writer, director, star, Wendell B. Harris. Junior. Uh, to Junior. <laughs> To talk, and it's just exciting. I, like you, you mentioned it in the in the episode, but I think it's worth mentioning now that since we recorded this movie's really kind of gotten into the the, the minds of pe- other film people. I think when we first did it, I was mentioning it to folks, and a lot of them, all of them, didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> but now it's playing at festivals, and it's coming out, and uh, he's getting interviewed and talked, and the movie's getting talked about. You know, finally, you know, yes, thirty some years later. So it's 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 fantastic. Let's hope it's not too little, even though it is definitely too late. And <laughs> yeah. people who are not familiar with it and haven't listened to that episode, Chameleon Street won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival in 1989. But unlike the previous year's winner, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Hollywood didn't welcome and embrace Wendell or his film. And over the years, it's emerged that Wendell Harris and Chameleon Street were the target of a campaign to silence them and to keep the film out of wide distribution and to keep the film's writer, director, and star from making more movies in Hollywood. In fact, it appears his only ally in Hollywood, real ally, has been Steven Soderbergh, who cast (laughs) Wendell in the film Out of Sight. And for the past decades, Wendell has been living in Flint, Michigan, and working on his follow-up film, an ambitious documentary called Yeshua vs. Frankenstein in 3D G-Speak that we discuss at length in the interview. And if the name sounds daunting, it is actually a very uh, exciting and interesting film. And uh, and it sounds like Wendell is getting close to finishing it. But we talk about that in this interview. Great. And you've heard it, Brian. And yeah. Do you have anything to say to get the listeners ready for it? <laughs> this just will also work as one of those great, soothing... <laughs> Like like when people look up on YouTube to sounds of people like, do, like doing sounds to calm them, the sound of his voice is beautiful. To hear it for three hours, I'm game. <laughs> he has one of the great voices, one of the great movie voices. And his this is an interview that takes you all over the place and you learn a lot about a person that is not really talked about or interviewed a bunch. Uh, so this is very, very exciting. And I'm very excited for anyone to listen to this. We recorded two very long sessions. We've edited those down to what is now probably more like a four-hour podcast, Brian. And <laughs> uh, and like you said, it's it's it goes into some really ex- excellent places. And yeah, just getting to spend time with that voice is a joy. So let's play the trailer from Chameleon Street and then go into that conversation. Great. Great. 
There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Some people call me Mr. Wonderful. Other people call me William Douglas Street Jr. Born in a log cabin in the backwoods of Kentucky, young Douglas soon elevated himself from field hand to tiger, from tiger to reporter, and from reporter to doctor, from doctor to co-ed, from co-ed to attorney, from attorney to congressman. When I meet somebody, I know within the first two minutes who they want me to be. I need some money. Make some money. I mean, I could sit here and make you think you're a genius for correctly analyzing this complex, exotic, notorious Negro. You know that the white man owns this world? I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Your credentials are just too amazing to believe. What would you concoct such an essential, low-down lie? I wanted to get the money. Open your mouth. This is all just a vacation to you, isn't it? Prison, a vacation? People ask me if I regret what happened. Sure, I regret it, but you can take my word for it. It's an unforgettable experience. I think, therefore I scan. I know not what I am. I am Chameleon Street. Perhaps I should wait until you start recording. You mentioned yesterday that... Um, your former management client and current friend, Skinner Myers, um, who is a very great filmmaker, I hear. Um, what exactly does Skinner Myers have to do with the question regarding Hollywood silencing filmmakers? Oh, only in that he was the one who turned me on to your film. And that was the, before I'd ever seen your film, the story he told me was of this great filmmaker I'd never heard of from my generation who won the Sundance uh, Grand Prize for his film and then never right. got to make another film. And, right. you know, when you introduce someone to an artist or something, you give them the sort of the short form, like this is why I think they're great. And then that becomes your story about them. But then when you actually have a chance to talk to that person, rather than to come at it and be like, I know your story. You were silenced by Hollywood. M maybe you have a different take on that story. Maybe your, your story is different. And I didn't want to just jump in here with me projecting onto you what that story meant instead of saying, hey, is that, is that your story? What is your story? So, uh, and, that, and because Skinner talked on, he, we interviewed him, he was one of the people who participated in the episode about you, uh, since we've already sort of represented that story on our podcast. I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak to it, clarify it, challenge it. So when you say, quote, how do you tell your Hollywood story, unquote, you're asking, you're asking what exactly, Andras? 
I guess I'm asking when you tell people and like, so I'll just give you my background. So I was in, I was in, uh, I moved out to Hollywood when I was 18 and I was lucky enough to find myself all of a sudden meeting a manager and getting, going out on lots of auditions. And I was in one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and it was a, it was big business and I didn't, I, I really didn't have anyone around me sort of helping me to understand how the business works. And I made some dumb decisions or maybe integrity decisions I thought were integrity decisions. And now I don't really work in that side of the film business anymore. And that's a story that I've told in different, different lengths and in different detail throughout my life since that happened as a, to me as a young person. It's defined who I am in a lot of ways. And so that would be like my short version of my Hollywood story. So what I'm looking for from you is like, how do you go from being a young artist who is not working in Hollywood to making a film that gets all of this attention? And then I'm sure you had lots of meetings. And yeah, again, this is where I'm saying I'm sure. I don't know. But something happened in in the life. Something happens in the life of a filmmaker or a film artist when they interact with the business that is Hollywood that, uh, you know, determines whether or not you make more movies or whether you do something else or whether you make movies on your own as opposed to inside of that system. So, I don't know, that's a long answer. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking as you were talking that one thing about filmmaking, which I guess you could say is an unforgiving foundation stone. But one thing about filmmaking, it's so expensive. And if you don't make a profit, it's very difficult to keep moving. Yeah. But, dear Lord, Andras. <laughs> well. Uh, I could, I mean, that question is so open-ended that I'm having a hard time as we speak trying to get my edit together on what to say because it's such a long, drawn-out, protracted story that um, to answer it swiftly is what I'd like to do. Um, I, you know, I first went out to Hollywood pretty much immediately after graduating from Juilliard in 76. I went out there in 77, mainly because I was hoping to get a job as a writer on the Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman <laughs> television show. Awesome. So that's what I, you know, that was my game plan. And when I got out there and submitted my work to I even recall the guy's name, Tom Ian. Um, you know, they they thanked me and they liked the writing and blah blah blah, but they they did not hire me. And I got a job working in downtown Hollywood at Pickwick Bookstore, which twenty years later became B. Dalton bookstore, but in 77, it was Pickwick Books, and I worked there for two years while auditioning constantly and um, sustaining myself with 
that bookseller job. In that bookstore, by the way, I ended up working for almost two years. And Andras, it, it's just amazing the people that I met there. I met Orson Welles. Oh. Wow. I met Sylvester Stallone at the very peak of his first fame garnered from Rocky. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. It was just a great job. But after a year and a half there, I did not seem to be making any progress in terms of filmmaking and acting in film. So I, I, I went back to Flint, Michigan, and that's when, with my family, we formed an audio-video studio called Prismatic Images. And the point of the studio was to make feature films, but, but also to videotape weddings and conferences and doing TV commercials and radio shows and radio programming. And that began in 1979. And that essentially is my first dealing with Hollywood because after I returned to Flint, Michigan and began that studio, with my family, that is what led to Chameleon Street. And would that have been, let's like 79, 80? Say it again. Would that be the timeline that you would have moved back to Flint in 79, 80? Right. Got it. I moved back to Flint in 79, immediately proceeded to have a nervous breakdown by going to Detroit with a film crew to make a... Uh, independent film in Manhattan. And unfortunately, I took a film crew and film equipment to Manhattan and an idea of what we were going to shoot. But I didn't take any budget. So there was no money. We were stranded in Manhattan. And we couldn't shoot. And I proceeded to have a nervous breakdown and came back to Flint, Michigan and focused on the audio video studio for the next five years until I read that interview of Doug Street in the Detroit News in the spring of 1985. So there's your first scoop, Andras. <laughs> I, I have never told anybody about that film experience in Manhattan. Good God. Well, can I ask you a question about what was the film that you were trying to make there? Well, in my mind, it was essentially going to be a film that was shot and improvised on the location. So I had Godard in my mind mm -hmm. 
and it was going to be a very, uh, you know, political, racial, and socio-political piece that we would improvise throughout Manhattan and and shoot like a kind of ongoing, you are there. That was the thinking. But uh, as I said, filmmaking, <laughs> even even the even the smallest film costs big bucks yeah 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 and manhattan is not the cheapest place to go to make a movie no no <laughs> so you've made your first attempt at making a film in manhattan it didn't go the way you wanted but as i've you know i think every filmmaker has a story where they're like I needed to make all the mistakes I made on my first one so that I could do the second one. And the second one for you is Chameleon Street. So what, so can you talk about your process of having the realization that Douglas Street's story was one you wanted to make into a movie and how you went about doing that? Well, I'll tell you, it, it was a very quick process, my friend, very quick. I. I am sitting at around 8 p.m. in the evening in my parents' den with the uh, TV on in the background. I'm reading through the Detroit News, sitting there on the couch, and I read an article devoted to Doug Street and his entire exploits up until that point. And the process, as you ask, was immediate in terms of me recognizing that Doug's story and his attitude and his exploits were gold as far as film narrative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Andras, I've, I've been very frank about what was going on. I was very much looking for a part to play. And as I ha have said in the past, you know, I was working on a couple other projects that I hoped would end up being filmed. One was a remake of Nightmare Alley. <laughs> Another one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. You should read that Criterion Top 10 um, because I, I talk about that. Yeah. It's one of my top 10. And I, I talk about how, you know, only reading about Doug Street stopped me plodding ahead on a Nightmare Alley remake. And, and and I was still kind of fiddling about, thinking about a production of Victor Hugo's The Man Who Laughs. That was also, hmm. I was puttering around with that. But the moment that I read about Doug Street, all of that was swept aside 
And it was so obvious that number one, it was, playing him w would be an absolute honor and joy and that the actual narrative would be very revealing of this country from a color and class standpoint. So you have this idea and you have this production company and do you just go into production or do you, are you raising money? What, how, how, how do you go from initial idea to we're, now we're shooting this thing? I guess you had to write a screenplay first. Right. And, you know, don't leave out all of the, I guess you'd call it grunt work that was going on between 1980 and 1985 when I read that article. Because during that time, you know, you're also earning a living by shooting everything from, you know, weddings to conferences to TV commercials, radio commercials, on and on. And, and that is, of course, extremely valuable and simultaneously looking for what the first feature film would be based on. That was all going on for that you know, those first five years. But after settling on Doug Street as a story, then it became an issue of writing the script and raising the money. They kind of go hand in hand and you have to start writing immediately because when you're going to people and asking for money, you've got to show them something on paper. So, you know, that's when you start writing endless outlines and endless synopsis and endless treatments in order to entice potential investors. And one thing that I need to also make clear is that the reason it took three years to, to write the script and the reason there were 36 different drafts is because it took three years to raise the money. You know, if, if we had had the money in place after the first year, I was ready to go with a script, a finished script after the first year. But we didn't have the money. There was you no know, endless, endless meetings. Mm. My mother, Helen Harris, who was the executive producer, and I, we had endless meetings with potential investors. And, you know, as I've often said, raising the money for Chameleon Street was like scraping dried blood off of the sidewalk with a butter knife. <laughs> uh, and did it, did you end up getting the funding from one source or from 
sort of cobbling together from multiple sources? Multiple sources. But it should also be stated that the $1.5 million budget breaks down as follows. Five hundred and eighty-five thousand from my parents. They invested five hundred and eighty-five thousand. My brother Hobart invested a hundred and twenty thousand, and the remainder were black investors. Although we did have. We did have uh, four white investors, but that came to about 95,000. The point being that the money essentially was black money. And from Michigan, all from Michigan, pretty much. Yep. And, uh, you know, I've also made the point that independent film is independent because of independent thought and independent money. You've got to have independent money. So you you get your budget together, and I imagine through all this time, you're also casting it in your mind. Like, how did you put... It seems like most of these people who are in this film, uh, for the most part, are were not people that... I mean, when I look at IMDb, most of the cast isn't even listed on there. And the ones who right. do don't have extensive credits. So right. how, did you, uh, how did you go about casting this film? Were these people you knew? Were they people you just hired a casting director and had auditions? How did you go about that? Well, we had all of that. Um, there was the hiring of Ruth Birch, B-U-R-C-H. She, she was a very well-known casting director. Uh, she, she did a lot of the casting for films and TV in the 50s and 60s. So when I met her and engaged her, she helped us in terms of getting our casting. But the casting of Chameleon Street is a very complex, somewhat tortured story. And you can go from specifics, which is the only way to do it, just uh, off the top of my head, for example, I, I'm thinking about all of the actors that we contacted for the role of Gabrielle Street, uh, you know, that, that was more agonizing and torturous and protracted than the search for <laughs> Vivian Lee to play Scarlett <laughs> O'Hara. You know, we approached uh, we approached Oprah Winfrey. We approached Latoya Jackson, 
Kathy Tyson, the great Kathy Tyson from Mona Lisa. And also Atala Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X. Um, mm. And for various reasons, you know, none of those worked out. Uh, so, are you telling me that Oprah chose the color purple over Chameleon Street? Listen, since you you have a way of asking very pertinent questions that nobody else has ever asked before, let me just say that of all the people that we contacted, the only person that we could not get through to was Oprah Winfrey. I could not get through to Oprah for them to even accept the script. And she's the only one in my life that I've ever had uh, been blocked from contacting. Wow. Latoya Jackson, Latoya Jackson didn't work out because her father he wanted so much money, Joe Jackson, that uh, we we just couldn't afford her. Adela Shabazz, the beautiful, brilliant Adela Shabazz, she would have been a great Gabrielle, but uh, she she turned it down. She turned it down, and uh, we couldn't afford. Kathy Tyson, ultimately. Uh, the part of the psychiatrist, Dr. Hand, who opens the film, actually, mm -hmm. uh, that was written for Brother Theodore. Oh. And <laughs> Ruth Birch had contacted him for us. And... Uh, there was some conflict. We couldn't get him, although he was favorable to doing it. But that's the that's the casting that got away, Brother Theodore. But he would have been great, though. Yeah. Uh, but he would not have been why. I mean, it was going to be very, very restrained. Not the you know the wild man screaming extremely restrained like that was the way i wanted him to play the part but ultimately the the part was played by david kiley who is the son of richard kiley and david kiley was absolutely great yeah that opening scene is great and i have to say uh while I would be curious to see any of those actresses you mentioned playing the role, the person you did get to play, uh, Gabrielle Street, was she's awesome in this film. She's fantastic in this movie. And that's Angela Les Leslie. Yeah, she's extraordinary. Extraordinary. Did, did you first meet her in a casting session? Did you see her on tape? What was the... When you first, when you auditioned her, did you know that she was the one? When I first auditioned Angela, what struck me about her immediately, you know, 
one thing about being a director in film is that, you know, you find out immediately that the, the great majority of people, when you're shooting them, you know, depending upon how that person is lit, the angle, the, the, the entire, the, the entire way the medium wraps itself around the image of the actor. There are favorable, you know, ways you can make people look mm -hmm. favorably, you know, enhancing their features. And there are, there are ways you can unenhance their features. And what, you know, what I'm trying to say poorly is that everybody, for the most part, almost everybody, has a bad angle. Yeah. You, know, you can shoot them and, you know, even Garbo, and Garbo knew this. Garbo knew that if you shot her a certain way, you know, she looks just like a dachshund. And that's why she kept William Daniels with her for, for her entire career. Well, I noticed when auditioning Angela that she looks incredibly beautiful, no matter what angle. <laughs> and there are very few that you can say that about. And yet, rewatching it last night, you can see there are times when, as a filmmaker, you're trying to show her in a more negative light. And I think that's one of the things that's that's really great about that performance is I think I think she's do you consider her to be the villain of Douglas Street's story? It seems like she is at, if not the villain, at least to some degree, his nemesis. That's at least what I got. And when I watched the film, I just found myself still liking her, even though she is portrayed in a lot of uh, negative ways. Well, you know, the thing about Chameleon Street, which I'm sure you're aware of, it's all Doug's story. You know, it's not a well-rounded, well-researched, all the, I mean, there is no input from anyone except Doug Street. It's all his story. And many of the uh, many of the lines are verbatim from Doug's from the lips of Doug Street. So when Doug tells his story, you know, Andras, you know, as far as Doug is concerned, at the moment of his arrest, yeah, she is the enemy. Yeah, she is the one who has betrayed him. I mean, you know, it's like that is his subjective take on it. But as you know, Doug Street has spent the entire film betraying any number of relationships. 
Yeah. Not the least of which would be Gabrielle, number one. And that entire relationship with Amina Tatiana, that's an adulterous affair. And that's a betrayal. So that's the trajectory of his narrative. And and I don't think that, uh, I don't know. Are you saying that you think Gabrielle is the problem, the enemy of Doug Street that brings him down? It, well, it's more that the from the very beginning of the film, that great scene where he's talking in the van about the money moon, and then about all of his the his first wife and his second wife both having this refrain of make some money, make some money, that at least in the world of the fr- the film, the pressure to make money is to please these women in his life. And th- it's their demanding that he make money that for- that pushes him into this life of crime. And, and of course, at the end, that's, you know, at the end, she is the betrayer. Gabrielle is the betrayer. Right. So in a broader sense, you could look at the film as being that capitalism and racism are the enemies to Doug Street's progression in the world. But it's personalized in the film in the the women in Doug Street's life who are hungry for this money. You get the sense that Douglas Street would be happy to just read books and listen to music if the women in his life weren't demanding that he make a lot of money. Is that is that accurate? I mean, at least to Doug Street's story? Well, actually... I'm not sure if it's inaccurate, but I think it's a little bit off the point. I think it's a little off the point. Well, please get me back on the point. Correct me. Uh, you're the, you know, this is to get your vision of it. How do you see those dynamics? Well, I mean, Andras, how can you actually say that Gabrielle has betrayed Doug? when the entire relationship between Doug, not to mention the daughter, Doug and his wife and daughter, Doug and the marriage covenant, Doug and monogamy. I mean, the entire, Doug has, on every level, including bringing money into the uh, situation. But on every level, he has gone his own way and betrayed whatever there is to be betrayed. So if you are building on a, you know, a house of betrayal, How, how can you lay the blame at the feet of Gabrielle? Well, oh, you, and I think that's what what I experienced again rewatching it last night 
was that I don't, was that I find myself, even though the film, even though my the hero of the film I'm watching, which is Doug Street, even though he keeps telling me that uh, that Gabrielle is is making demands of him that are unreasonable and she smacks him around and she like she's she the film has her do some you know ultimately betray him and 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 inform on him to the cops and yet i do find myself at the end of the film still liking her um not disliking the hero but just sort of being caught in this dynamic of like okay well the film says that she's She's doing all these dastardly things, but the performance and maybe the film is doing something more subversive and actually setting her up as a kind of hero without a voice. Because, as you say, this is Doug Street's story and he's the voice. But you're right. The actions, his actions are are betrayals at every at every level. And I mean, he's a con man and she's a woman trying to deal with being married to a con man. That's right. And, you know, the the entire issue of having a wife and a child, I mean, you've got to do something. You have, you, you are accountable. And anyway. I, I'm, I am kind of curious. Is this the way, I mean, what I hear from you is a an adult man's view of this situation. You've lived a life. You, you have a certain amount of maturity. I'm curious, when you were making the film as a young man, did you feel the same way? Or has your relationship to the characters in your film changed as you've grown? No. No. It was all laid out when we made the film, who was betraying whom. Got it. And and what was being betrayed. And although you haven't asked about it, nobody has ever asked about it, actually. But, you know, the relationship between Doug and Gabrielle, which is exacerbated by, at one point, she decides to become a Jehovah Witness, and they had been nominal, but they had been Baptist prior to her becoming a Jehovah Witness. That was <laughs> was is a the line further. is the line who gets tired of being a Baptist? Is that the line from the film uh, that Doug Street says in in the voiceover? How can you? How can? How can you? Get tired of being a Baptist. That's what he says. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> yes, it is. But, you know, that point about how they have no agreement in terms of how to raise the child, how to bring money into the situation. I mean, you have to have money in order to buy chicken, to feed yourself. <laughs> You have to have money. The, you have to have money to, to clothe the child. Uh, Gabrielle and Doug are dependent upon each other. 
And that was crystal clear when we made the film, and it's crystal clear now. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Doug was, Doug was as honest, he was honest enough to recognize that he had betrayed, you know, right and left in his various quote unquote escapades. Yeah. Yeah. I have lots of more que- I have lots more questions about the film and I want to get into those but I also am curious can we just jump forward for a second so you make this movie it's it's finished again I have lots of questions more questions but just about the film but once it's finished the next thing that I'm aware of in the story is it goes to Sundance and it wins the grand jury prize it's the grand jury prize right or did one it won the main uh, film award at Sundance in, was it 89 or 90? Which year was it? January 1990, the Grand Jury Prize. Right. So from, I mean, that's that's a very, it's a very prestigious award. Maybe more, like that, that was at the beginning of Sundance. But how does that, how do you go from making this movie, finishing it, to getting it to Sundance and it winning the award? Can you walk me through that? How do I go from what to what? How do you go from I finished this independent movie funded in Michigan with family and friends money to going to this to Sundance and winning this award? Well, you know, the, the first thing you do is you get on the festival circuit. And in the autumn of 1989, that's exactly what we did. We submitted the film to Venice and uh, Toronto and Telluride and, gosh, I'm leaving out one. Oh, Cannes. Cannes turned us down. Telluride turned us down. The film was shown in Toronto and in Venice, and it, it was submitted to Sundance and accepted, you know, like the year before at Sundance, Steven Soderbergh won for Sex, Lies and Videotape. Now, I think, I think before Steven even left Park City, he had a distribution deal. Chameleon Street did not get a distribution deal for another year. We did not actually get distributed until Northern Arts, a distributor out of Massachusetts, picked us up and we were distributed for about six weeks in the spring of 1991. There's, uh, there. I feel like there's a lot unsaid and implied in that story. Then I'd like to dig into it a little bit. So, you're at Sundance. You're aware that winning the Grand Jury Prize has a history of leading to an immediate embrace from Hollywood and the commercial, you know, the commercial entities that fund it, the distribute the right. dis- distribution channels. 
and you're there and you're waiting, you know, you're like, okay, where's my, where's my distribution deal? What did you have an awareness during that Sundance that your experience was different than the pre than previous winners? Well, uh, not, not really, uh, that would come, that would come a few weeks later, a few weeks and years later, mm -hmm. but at that very moment, what you're asking, Andras, uh, I, I was satisfied to get, you know, the award and a bottle of Dom Perignon sent to my chateau that night by Alan J. Pakula <laughs> with a very warm and gracious and encouraging note. And I didn't feel, even though I didn't have a distribution deal, uh, everybody seemed so excited and so enthusiastic that I said, well, I'll get the distribution deal next week in Hollywood. Does that answer your question? Yeah, well, it does, and it leads to the next question, which is, okay, so it's the next week in Hollywood. There isn't a distribution deal forthcoming, but are there calls? Are there meetings? Are you going around to the studios and pitching your next project? What are you doing? Yeah, well, that's that part of the problem. That's part of the problem, actually, because it would be, in fact, this has all been documented by Elvis Mitchell, who interviewed me uh, and on video, I was being shot as he informed me that Chameleon Street was being suppressed and that I was being waylaid and distracted and marginalized in Hollywood. But um, I'm sorry, your question again was... Well, okay, you're getting to it. So you're, so it's that, it's the next, it's the week after, or the weeks after you've won right. this award. Right. And yeah, I, I'm just curious. So when was the Elvis Mitchell interview? That was like, that was like in April, March or April of 1990. So that would be about four or five months. Maybe it was June. But anyway, it was after January 1990 when we win the award. I move out there in March. I moved to Hollywood in March. And immediately, immediately, I'm inundated with all the meetings with all the head production companies in Hollywood. That is, I've always said, you know, that that is the main prize. Yeah, you get this wonderful uh, uh, statue crystal prize when you win the grand jury prize, but the real prize is you get access to every major production company in Hollywood. So I had all these meetings that I was constantly going to, 
And thinking, of course, that distribution for Chameleon Street would be interlaced with all these meetings. I mean, I'm going to meetings with everybody who is anybody in Hollywood. Barry Levinson, Spielberg, Shares Company, Jane Fonda. I mean, none of those people actually met with me, just their, their staff. Right. The only people who actually met with me face-to-face was uh, Mel Brooks, Jerry Weintraub, and Ed Pressman. Everybody else, it was, uh, you know, their people. Wow. That's, uh, okay, those are those are some good folks. It's uh, Mel Brooks, how was the meeting with Mel Brooks? <laughs> Let me just say that in... In the first 48 seconds of our meeting, when he stuck his head into the conference room, in 48 seconds, Andras, I understood why the great Mel Brooks had been almost thrown out of a window by Sid Caesar in the 1950s during a writer's meeting for your show of shows. What did he do? I can't tell you what he said. All, all I can say is I understood immediately why Sid Caesar almost threw him out of a window. Okay. Okay. I, I would... I. I wish I had a. I wish I was a fly on the wall there, so I. So you wouldn't have to tell me, but I'd know. Now we can all just. Uh, all just imagine. Uh, <laughs> and I'm curious. It's just a weird synchronicity. Um, one a director that I've been working with, uh, who I met through this podcast, named Paul Williams, uh, not the the singer or the writer for Crawdaddy magazine or the architect, but the other Paul Williams, the filmmaker. Uh, and he was partners with Ed Pressman. Uh, Williams Pressman was, or Pressman Williams was their company for many years. And Whoa. so uh, how was, I'm just curious because I've, I've thought more about Edward Pressman in the last year than ever before in talking with Paul. I'm curious how that meeting went. Um, boy, you have a way of asking questions of very interesting moments because my meeting with Ed Pressman was then and now unprecedented. I brought to the meeting my brother Hobart Harris, the film's composer, Peter Moore, and an Australian filmmaker producer whose name I have forgotten, but I had just met him two days before at a meeting in Hollywood. And for whatever reason, I decided he it would be great if he came to this meeting I had with Ed Pressman. That turned out to be a big mistake. This guy, uh, he, he, well, anyway, <laughs> I I ended up wishing I had never brought the guy to, to the meeting with Ed Pressman. And 
Ed Pressman kept asking me about a project that I had pitched to him regarding the life story of Alexander Pushkin, the great Russian writer who is the acknowledged Shakespeare of Russia. And of course, he, you know, he's also black. And so Pressman kept asking me, how much would the budget be for a film about Alexander Pushkin? And I had not worked it out. So I, I kept trying to dodge that question, but he finally jacked me up against the wall and made me answer it. So I said 20 million. That's exactly the number I was thinking. <laughs> Great. Okay. Yeah. And what did he say? Back in 1991, <laughs> 20 million was a little bit more than it is today. Yeah. In any case, uh, Ed Pressman thought it was totally absurd. And that ended the meeting. Did you have someone in mind who you wanted to play Pushkin? Yeah. Yeah, the same guy that had played it on stage in a one-man show throughout prisons and in Flint, Wendell B. Harris Jr. Ah, I, I've, I've heard of this actor. He's pretty good in the film Chameleon Street. Well... Wait, you didn't. What? How did? How did the Australian guy ruin the meeting? I'm, you you sort of left that uh, Chekhov's gun well, on the on the on the mantle. You know, he had he had really impressed me as, as a very creative and balanced individual. Uh, the day before, when I met him at the party, uh, so I was somewhat surprised that when we got into the meeting. He just all of a sudden started speaking. I mean, I, I don't recall the exact things that he was saying, but they were totally off the wall, off point, sometimes off color, and totally spurious. And gosh, I remember we all went to a restaurant after the meeting Lord have mercy. I laid into him, but but it, it extremely, extremely quietly. My mother always taught me that when you really have something to say to someone, and especially if you're angry with them, make sure you speak very low and very softly and very sweetly. And I spoke so softly and sweetly to this Australian that he melted into a puddle. You know, it's it. I'm I'm loving getting you're telling these stories because, uh, again, as I told you, I I heard your story before I saw the film, and then when I saw the film Chameleon Street, there are a couple of scenes where Doug Street's uh, in meetings with figures of authority whether it's with the lawyers or with the prison doctor. And I I can't help but imagine, and maybe this is incorrect, that your 
that that's you talking to Hollywood, it, that you're sitting across a desk from these people who are, you know, who don't either don't understand you or don't get the project, and you know what you're doing. You know that you do, that you just won this uh, this award. You know that your distribution deal is coming, and I'm just curious when you had these meetings with these people. Did you ever feel some connection to those scenes from Chameleon Street? Well, the thing about Chameleon Street is that it delves with the interaction between blacks and whites in the American culture, which is so stratified by race and it takes those stratifications and you know plucks them like the strings of a harp so yes everything that takes place in chameleon street is so interlaced with the interaction between blacks and whites in this country that you can't help but find reverberations. Wherever you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you're you're having these meetings mostly with people's assistants, occasionally meeting with the actual power players. Still so curious about that Mel Brooks meeting, but I'm just going to let it go. Uh, but... Uh, and then, so then you have this interview with Elvis Mitchell. What do you find out in that about the ways that you are being sandbagged? Well, up until that interview by Elvis Mitchell, I had been thinking that I was, you know, playing the Hollywood casino that i was there working towards some end that would culminate in a deal for my next feature and instead after you know during that interview right there on camera elvis tells me i mean he's off camera i'm on camera and Elvis tells me something which the moment he says it, I understand that he's exactly right. That is, that's what's happening. Not what I thought, that I was playing the Hollywood game, that I, people were actually interested in what my next feature would be or what the next job would be. No, it, it was quite... It was quite the opposite. And yet, having said all that, I'll also say that, because I've been leaving this out and I shouldn't, you know, uh, Jerry Weintraub, Jerry Weintraub is the only one who actually had the guts to actually hire me. And I worked for him for almost two years on a script and I should 
I should tell you that because, you know, in telling this whole Hollywood story, how Hollywood abused Wendell and how Hollywood ignored Wendell and I, and all of that, and they did, but they also hired Wendell. So did Showtime, uh, you know, to write scripts. And while I was there for three years, I learned something about Hollywood, which I had not really been aware of. And that is, Andras, you can earn a living in Hollywood in filmmaking and never actually make a film. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that until I was out there for three years. And, and then I met the people. I met people who were involved in planning and producing and proposing and, and pushing but never actually making making the finished product. You could actually make money and sustain yourself and yet not actually end up producing anything. That's kind of an amazing phenomenon, but it's, it's real. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like uh, a film like Barton Fink, that's where that lives this weird purgatory of hollywood where you're in the system you're you're as if you were happy to just get a paycheck and hang out with famous people hollywood could be a really sort of easy place if you're if you get into it if you if you manage to work your way into it but if you actually want to make things if you actually have a vision of what you'd like to make it gets much more difficult well, that is the crux of it. What you just said, if you want to be part of the team that is aiding them in whatever they are producing, then you can work forever and, and be paid very well. But the moment that you start submitting content because it's a war over content. You know, it's not a war over production. It's a war over content. Yes. You just, that's a mouthful right there. That is the, that is, uh, that's the crux of it. Yes. Um, so, okay, so you had this moment where you realized that what you thought was going on in terms of your being welcomed into the film business was actually the opposite. And yet you say you did get hired for some jobs. So you stayed in Hollywood for a few more years. How, how long did you, how long is this chapter of the story? How long were you in Hollywood? Three years. So that gets us to like 94. Yeah. And is there any part of what you were doing there, the things you were writing that you look back on and think, God, I wish that had gotten made. I was really happy with that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 
Oh yes, everything that everything I worked on, I wish I wish had been made. You know, during that period, I wrote a feature script based on the life of Joe Lewis called The Brown Bomber. And that was written not for a Hollywood studio, but for the Joe Lewis Barrow family. And they were extremely interested in Spike Lee directing it. But uh, I just wrote the script. And then I wrote a a script on spec and shopped it shopped it around called Negropolis. Negropolis is a ancient Rome ancient Rome satire uh, based on the based on the conceit that all of the emperors and most of the senators and ruling class are black and all the slaves are white. And the emperor, whose name is Canigula, that's spelled <laughs> C-A-N, as in Nancy, I-G-U-L-A. Yeah. Canigula is the emperor. And... Can, can, uh, let's Alexander make this now. The, can we just make this now? <laughs> yes. And and Alexander the Great is played by Howard Stern uh, in a long blonde wick, and he's Jewish. Alexander the Great is Jewish with, with blonde hair. And Oprah Winfrey was written the part of Cleopatra, and Cleopatra is this corporate genius who has manufactured a line of Cleo makeup products and also has incorporated a line of different Cleopatras who impersonate her in various countries. And this seems yeah. like so like something that someone else could, uh, you know, it's like it's, it's laying there. This, this, is a, this is something right there laying there on the ground. Anyone could take and run with and make into what it could be. And there are such a there's such a dearth of ideas and so much so many people out there trying to I feel like who would want something like a film like that right now? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's funny as you say that. I'm I'm reminded of this one scene in Negropolis where the emperor Canigula decides. You know, I mean, he he is constantly doing these out of the box, mad, insane things. And 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 one thing he does is he will banish a letter. Or, ex or change a letter from one thing to another. Like, for all of the German vassals that he is emperor over, 
one day he capriciously decides that the German alphabet will no longer have a G, that all the G's in the German language will be now replaced by V, as in Victor. <laughs> so that now, instead of referring to a German, you are referring to a vermin. And it, it's no longer <laughs> Germany, it's vermini. So that, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about that. It is. It is. It is a comedy. Yes. God. Yes, oh. it is. But you know, it's uh, like Chaplin in The Great Dictator, or Richard Pryor in This Way Is Up, or uh, Sid Caesar in Your Show of Shows, or the great Phil Silvers in Bilko. It's weaponized comedy yeah that particular script was in 1994 was interesting to spike lee who agreed to produce it and so we negotiated with attorneys for like four months. And on the day that we were going to sign the contract, he was on the set of Crooklyn at the moment. And I was here in Flint. Or maybe I was in Hollywood. But anyway, on the day that we were supposed to sign the contracts, I asked a question about adding a clause that I would have to sign off on the edit, the final edit. And as soon as Spike was informed, he exploded and, and called the deal off. So <sighs> Necropolis. By the way, speaking of uh, Spike Lee, I wrote... I wrote a role in Negropolis for Spike's sister, Joie. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is she is the the great talent in that family. I would I mean, Oh well. You know, it's so funny how many I, I hear this story, not about Spike uh, Lee, but just in you, – I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people who talk about someone who's like a famous director, movie star person, and then they're like, but you know, his sister is really the talent in that family. And I can I, – I, I've heard this like about two or three other people very recently. And right. it just seems like uh, – yeah, I, someone should. There should be an agency out there just really targeting the sisters of these uh, more successful brothers. That's how they found Julia Roberts, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Well, uh, yeah, I, I want yeah. I couldn't help but be struck by the fact I I I always I think about you and Soderbergh. You're linked in my mind, in part because of your appearance in Out of Sight, which I'd, I'd love to hear how that came about and your connection with Sundance. But then when you talk about Negropolis, 
and I think about his film Schizopolis, first of all, I think, what a double feature. I would love to be able to have seen that double feature. But I guess that leads me to, do you feel uh, particularly connected to Soderbergh in, as a filmmaker? Oh, yeah. And I got a phone call from Stephen. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. It must have been like a year before Schizopolis came out. Uh, I, I was still in Hollywood, I think. But anyway, St- Stephen contacted me because, you know, he was aware that I was pushing Negropolis in Hollywood. I pitched it all over the place. And Stephen was aware of it. I think he had a, a copy of my treatment also. Anyway, he called me up one day and said, uh, Wendell, would you mind uh, if I make a movie called Schizopolis, uh, inspired by your title, Negropolis? And I said, of course not. Of course not. And uh, he went on and made Schizopolis, which between you and me, Andres, it's it's my favorite Soderbergh film. We're, you're I, you're definitely a, a, a sort of the world is wrong kind of artist because yeah, I think Brian, my co-host, and I would fully agree with that as being one of our favorites of his films. Yeah, so unique. So I mean, that's one of those. It's it's one of the ones. Well, can we talk? I. I I don't want to, he's your friend and a colleague, so I don't want to get too into it, but what you're talking about here, singling out that film, it speaks to what, uh, sort of what a unique artist he is in that he has these very particular visions and he figures out how to make them, but he also has figured out how to work very well within that Hollywood system without seeming to give up what makes him Soderbergh? Well, yeah, yeah, Stephen has learned, he has definitely learned how to play the Hollywood game, which essentially is to do what they say in terms of the content. You know, before I had a conversation with Stephen in 2002 when it was prior to him actually starting work on Solaris. And he told me, you know, Wendell, I do not want to make this film. And, and he kept saying that over and over in the conversation. You know, finally I said, well, well, why are you making it? And then he answered something about, you know, James Cameron uh, wanted wanted him to do it and whatever the studio was, I, was it Fox? Anyway, the the studio had just overwhelmed him with, you know, We'll give you all the money in the world to to make this science fiction film, Solaris. And for whatever reason, Stephen felt that he was being 
somehow coerced into making Solaris. And the tension in Hollywood is oftentimes, oftentimes connected to being forced into producing content that you are either indifferent to or perhaps even against. You know, I, I had a conversation with Stephen in 1991 out in Hollywood at a dinner and just in passing, it was not a conversation, it was not a political conversation, but in passing, he made a very derogatory comment about Che Guevara. Huh. And he, you know, he, he expressed his great disdain. Although, you know, when, when Stephen expresses great disdain, you would hardly know it from his facial expression because he always keeps his facial expression in a kind of a deadpan, but that's how come he can make these great one-liners so hilarious, but about what, 10, 12 years later, he ends up making a huge film homage to Che. Two films. Well, what? <laughs> Two films. Yeah, right. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Two. So my only point is that when you're working in Hollywood, you either fall in line and produce what they say, or you get out of Dodge, man. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that is like the the Hollywood story that we inherit is the Steven Soderbergh story but the hollywood story that most of us who have any connection with it experience is more like the wendell harris story that you're describing is coming out to hollywood if you manage to have some success thinking that that's going to mean something and realizing it only means something if you're willing to buy into something that is the antithesis of what made you make that initial impact in the first place. And right. it's a rare person who is able to, like, I think that's one of the things that I find respectable about Soderbergh is that he's managed to do that with enough grace as an artist that I still enjoy watching his films, which is not the case with, uh, you know, as you said, the system it doesn't really, uh, maybe it's his deadpan nature that allows him to sort of smuggle Steven Soderbergh films into films that he may not even want to make, which, by the way, I've never seen his Solaris, so I don't know about it. But well, you know, uh, in 2009, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, along with Chameleon Street, were inducted into the Sundance UCLA archive, and they had both of us come back for that ceremony. And, you know, there was a big dinner one night, just exquisite food. And 
Robert Redford got up to introduce the entire gathering to the event, and he made a few comments. And Stephen was sitting to his left about 20 feet away. And I watched the interplay between Redford and Soderbergh throughout that evening, which did not last long because as soon as Redford introduced Stephen, he disappeared immediately. And Stephen got up and made some comments, but Redford was gone. And it just reminded me of the tension between the two of them. Now, like I say, this is 2009, mm -hmm. but all throughout the early 90s, Redford was constantly nagging Stephen about not being commercial enough and that all of his projects smacked of some kind of non-commercial avant-garde art house ethos that was not commercial. But the interesting thing is that in the mid-90s, a project that Stephen was nursing was, well, I don't know how it happened exactly, but Redford ended up directing Quiz Show. And that was Stephen's project. It feels like a, a Soderbergh. That's I, that's wild. Sorry. You know, I have often thought, Andras, I've often thought that if Stephen had directed Quiz Show, it, it, that would have ended up being his greatest film. And my only point is that Redford was constantly on Stephen's back in the early 90s about being commercial. And that's a lesson which Stephen has definitely learned, but it would appear that the price Stephen had to pay for that lesson was not directing quiz show. <laughs> right. Anyway, in 2009, I could still feel the tension between them. Yeah, yeah. Doing this, doing this work, talking with different filmmakers, you end up learning stories that definitely change your opinion of people you thought were big integrity people. I don't want to go too deeply into it, but we did an episode about the film's Thunderheart, an incident at Oglala, about the American Indian movement and Leonard Peltier right. and... Uh, Redford right. uh, narrates incident at Oglala, so you get the impression that he's very supportive of this, of AIM and of Peltier and of that project. But Michael Apted, actually, in an interview close to the end of his life, pretty much says the exact opposite, that Redford was extremely critical of the film and of Peltier and did things to make it so that it was harder to get out. So it's just... again. I, I don't want to, this isn't to tear down Redford, but also just sort of like to talk to that dynamic of some people right. 
a crew to themselves. And I think maybe this is just a Hollywood star thing that it's a talent to be able to draw the integrities of the integrity of others to yourself and have it affixed to you as a star, even while at the same time, un, you know, to some degree undercutting those artists and the causes that you're getting credit for uh, being supportive of. Um, yeah. So, and I, I feel like that, that sounds like what you're, speaking to in the quiz uh the quiz show uh dynamic you know it was obvious to me at least it seemed obvious still does that redford felt a proprietary ownership of stephen to a certain extent because stephen's career was made at sundance right by winning sex lies and videotapes so that gave Redford the feeling that, well, you know, I can advise him and criticize him and even take over one of his projects because, after all, he's a child of Sundance. Right. Anyway, I was very, you know, initially in 1990, Robert Redford was not at Sundance when, I, you know, we won. He was away out of the country shooting Havana directed by Sidney Pollack. So I didn't meet him in 1990, but in 2009, Jeffrey Gilmore was very gracious and arranged a quick meeting between myself and Robert Redford. And all I said to him was, can you help me get Chameleon Street on the Sundance channel? I want you to know, that for the 30 years Chameleon Street has, or the 25 years that Chameleon Street has been suppressed, I have done everything humanly possible, contacted every influential individual I had, from Robert Redford to Steven Soderbergh to all kinds of people, have attempted to assist me in breaking the Chameleon Street broadcast ban. And no one, not Steven Soderbergh, God bless him, not Robert Redford, God bless him, and no one else has been able to break that broadcast ban. And he told me in response that, you know, for my request to get the film on Sundance channel, that he had sold the channel to another corporation and he had nothing to say anymore about. He had no power, he said. So uh, I just wanted to add that because, you know, you may be laboring under the same, even a little bit, the same canard conundrum that I labored under and that, and that the public does labor under. You know, we look at Hollywood and the people who work there as having the power. Andras, they do not have the power. They are the slaves who implement what the power says. 
And, you know, we can't understand that. We think Steven Spielberg has ultimate power. Listen, if anybody had ultimate power in entertainment, it, it, that person would have been Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson is a filmmaker, and yet he could not get his props in Hollywood. Instead of playing Peter Pan like he should have for Spielberg, Robin Williams played Peter Pan. And Robin told me even he thought that Michael should have played it. So I, you know, I, I'm just saying that you can talk to all the Robert Redfords you want, but that's not where the power is. So, okay, so I feel like we're we're now moving into whatever the next chapter is after you was there was there a moment that made you realize I need to leave I need to leave Hollywood and go back to Michigan? Yeah. Yeah. That third year I remember that the initial glow from January 1990 finally evaporated into the ether by 1993-94 in Hollywood. You know, it was clear after three years and after you know, people like Elvis Mitchell and Armin White helping me understand the dynamic, it was clear that I was not going to be supported in Hollywood, and I suppose you've heard of that joke which was going around during that, you know, during that three years, that was the early 90s when black film directors were seemingly sought after and rewarded by Hollywood deals. And, and, and there was that saying that went around Hollywood all you have to do to get a good production deal in Hollywood is be black, male, and not Wendell Harris. <laughs> I had not heard that joke. Uh, but it's not a fun one to be the punchline of. So, you know, after three years and that kind of, that kind of input, you, you, you get the impression that it's time to leave. And I often, I often remember that when I left Hollywood in 1994, I guess, I remember feeling like, man, you're leaving Hollywood with your tail between your legs. They have, they have whipped you into, into some kind of, exit you know the funny thing about hollywood which hal holbrook who just died recently hal holbrook's wife uh dixie dixie carter she said she said it best that the difference between new york and hollywood is that in new york there 
they're very blunt, sometimes brusque, but upfront about, you know, whatever business dealings you're engaged in. But she said in Hollywood, you can go to a meeting or you can go to 10 meetings and you think that everything has gone great in that meeting, that they love you, they support you, that everything that, that is going to happen. And then you leave the, the you know, you, you leave the meeting and you stop into a grocery store to pick up a quart of milk. And as you bend over to pick up the milk, your head falls off because it was cut off in that meeting and you never knew it. Yeah. 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 I, I wonder, uh, so my orientation, uh, my family were are political activists to some degree, especially in earlier generations. Uh, my grandfather was a, was a communist lawyer who fought against, uh, on the lynching in the South and, Led to my grandfather being called before Huac. All the my, so my my point is that my my orientation towards Hollywood is very aware of the blacklist and Huac. And when I hear stories like that, I feel like there's something about the vestiges of that kind of sort of double speak and duplicity that was a survival mechanism that was built into the industry. That like the people who succeeded in the industry were the people who could do that, who could meet, you know, sort of meet with you and smile to your face and then inform on you in, uh, to the FBI behind your back and destroy your career all without you ever knowing that that was what they were doing. Um, I don't know. If, yeah, I don't know if there's do you have any I, you don't have to have an appointment. That's definitely my own perspective. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And as you were speaking, I I don't know why my mind went to it, but you know the my mind went to the early forties, nineteen forty or forty one. Uh, you know the the history of this country has been that there have always been some whites who have actually tried to help black people in our situation in in 1940 or 41 there was some white guy i don't know what his name is but he knew chester himes and he was a great admirer of chester himes writing so he tried to get him a job at warner brothers and actually got chester himes on the lot for about a week until Jack Warner heard that Chester Himes was on the property. He immediately, Jack Warner, immediately sent security and a note to whoever was in charge of security to immediately go and escort Chester Himes off the Warner Brothers lot because I don't want, quote, I don't want no niggers on this lot, unquote. And my mind 
my mind boggles at the thought of Chester Himes writing scripts, screenplays for Warner Brothers in the 40s. Oh. But, uh, yeah. When you mentioned the Chester Himes on the Warner Brothers lot story, it made me think of the Jackie Robinson auditioning for the Red Sox story. Are you familiar with this? Uh, no. In 1945, so two years before he would uh, begin desegregating baseball with the, with the Brooklyn Dodgers, an integrationist paper and journalist waged a campaign to force the Red Sox to audition three Negro League players, one of whom was Jackie Robinson. And the story goes that Tom Yockey, the the Red Sox owner who had been a good friend of Ty Cobb's and was a very uh, an unapologetic racist, came out and shouted basically what Jack Warner said about Chester Himes two years earlier. Right. I don't right. want those N words on my field. Get those N words off my I, field. I, you know, I, I really think it's important to quote Jack Warner exactly. You can quote. I don't want no niggers on this lot. Unquote. You know, it's it's so amazing to me how racism makes you stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and imagine how the Red Sox would have done if they had signed Jackie Robinson in 1945. Didn't win a World Series until 2004, guys. So, okay, sorry, go on. That was the Red Sox. Yeah. Gosh, I thought it was the Cubs. No, no, and I grew up as a Red Sox fan, so it's one of those things of like of realizing <laughs> that you've been... Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I guess would you mind just cuz I I I I again vaguely aware of Chester Himes when you mentioned him I did more research and then we did an episode about an HBO series that was made in the early 90s called Cosmic Slop where they did a Chester Himes short story as one of the three segments in an episode called uh, Tang about this couple who's in their apartment and a gun is delivered to their door and said, wait for the, you know, wait for the uprising. So I'm just curious, could you talk a little bit about Chester Himes? In the summer of 1981 in somewhere near you on the West Coast uh, on a beachfront property that was owned probably still is owned by the great great black writer Ishmael Reed and my mother Helen and myself were privileged to actually conduct and record not only Ishmael Reed whom we were there for but at the same time, Chester and Leslie Himes were there visiting Ishmael Reed. 
Wow. So we got the final interview of Chester Himes, which was uh, a great honor, of course. A great honor. It was after his final stroke and Leslie, his wife, she had to interpret a lot of what Chester Himes said, but he was still, still the great Chester Himes. Do you have any particular memories of thing, like things that you learned about him during that time or just things you think are important for people to know about Chester Himes you might not be aware of him? Well, you know, Andras, when you meet somebody who is in their mid-80s and they're confined to a wheelchair and they have a very difficult time speaking every syllable is an effort and they have accomplished in their life the most articulate profound dramatic i mean chester himes writing is off the chain and off the charts. When I think of the great writers, I think of Chester Himes first. And to see the, the intellect and, I mean, this amazing intellect, this amazing writer at the end of his life, forcing his thoughts and emotions through his disabled body. That is a lesson and an example which is difficult to put into words. Yeah, yeah. Um... I think anyone, I think anyone who's had a beloved elder who you knew either as a parent or a grandparent or a teacher or a coach or something, and you experienced them in the, when they were at their, maybe not their full power, but at their middle-aged, a different kind of full power, and then to see that transition, I think anyone who's watched someone continue to fight right up to the end through a body that's decaying can relate. And obviously it's even more powerful when it's someone who has been a teacher or a coach or a, a parent or an uncle to the, to, to the world through art that speaks to such a, uh, you know, could speak to you even though you'd never met him before. Right. Uh, Although I want to make clear that just in case people are thinking, you know, that Chester Himes had Alzheimer's or dementia. He did not. And that's kind of like my point also, that he 
his mind was as sharp as a tack. Yeah. But, uh, you know, his body betrayed him. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking here at, I guess he, he suffered from Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Uh, is there any book of his that you'd particularly recommend to people who wanted to begin their Chester Himes journey? If he hollers, let him go. From 1945. I didn't know you were such a such a Chester Himes expert. Well, I just have his, honestly, I just have his Wikipedia up in front of me. And so the, the, oh, okay. <laughs> the world is his expert and I'm just trying to fill in the blanks. I've got, I've got my cheat sheet in front of me. I'm not going to claim, I would like, I would like to someday be able to be at least someone who's read a few of his books and can speak intelligently about him. But at this point I can just give you the, just the facts, Jack. Well, listen, listen, uh, I would also recommend the collected short stories of Chester Himes. Which Those are... I imagine that includes the story that Tang from the Cosmic Slop series was based upon, because it looks like that's his only book of short stories. Say, say it again. Uh, in the 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 series I was taught telling you about cosmic slop where they do, uh, it's a Reginald Hudland, uh, series. They did just, they had three episodes on HBO and one of them was based upon a Chester Himes short story. And the, the, uh, episode was titled Tang T A N G, which is the name of the wife in this couple that has a shotgun delivered to their door. And we see the outcome of that. Um, but yeah, if people who are interested in that would uh, probably find that story in the collected stories of Chester Himes. Andras, when was that Hudlin production produced? 1993. 19, oh, 1994. Sorry, 1994. Um, really? Yeah, it's really... Uh, well, we we did a whole episode about it, uh, and it actually it'll it'll be the episode that came right before this one right, for people who are listening, and it is very very powerful. And like Chameleon Street, and like Dutchman, totally buried. HBO has a whole like HBO Max has all their HBO stuff, but they don't have Cosmic Slop. And they also, in, in doing that research on that, it, we came across that HBO, which also produced the trial of James Earl Ray with the King family, that also is not available on HBO's services. And I, it, it's like we're starting to see a trend here. Chameleon Street, Dutchman, Cosmic Slop, the trial of James Earl Ray. What do all these four products have in common? Um, I, they, they, I, I'm, I'm really, I, there's, there's a part of me that's, that thinks I know what they have in common, but I actually am asking you. Well, I've always said and thought that one of the best ways to find out 
what is being suppressed is to actually watch it. So, you know, when people, I, I've always had, uh, when people watch Chameleon Street, uh, certainly black people, uh, I've never even had one question as to why has this film been suppressed? Right. Black people know immediately upon seeing Communion Street why it's been suppressed. Uh, it's only whites who have engaged me in that discussion of, well, do you really think it's being suppressed? I, I think it's probably has more to do with the trends of what's popular at the moment and on and on and on. Uh, you know, so many amazing moments in the last 30 years of fighting for Chameleon Street. In 2014, I had a phone conversation with the vice president of acquisitions at HBO. And he explained to me very seriously why HBO could not screen Chameleon Street because it was uh, too old that it was made in 1990 and HBO didn't show old movies. So I, uh, you know, that was such a, huh, such a bogus point to make that I, you know, I still went through and I, I had a list which I read to him of all the movies from the 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s that HBO was playing. But, um, you know, I, I, he's like, no, no, I don't mean like old in terms of time. I mean, old is a euphemism. <laughs> well, you know, when you were talking about HUAC, which, of course, that begins. Actually, it begins before 47, but it, it takes off in 47. But it, even in the early 40s. Uh, that whole communist baiting thing was beginning. Oh yeah, I mean the Charlie Chaplin. That's that's the whole Charlie Chaplin story. Exactly. Uh, exactly. We just did an episode talking about that, about how Chaplin, the the case against Chaplin, formed the underpinnings for what would come later in the Red Scares of the of the forties and fifties. That's true. That's true. And also in the early 40s, I don't know if you're aware, but James Cagney and his brother, William, you know, they they generated that entire Yankee Doodle Dandy project in order to prove to the whatever that pre-HUAC committee was. Uh, they were after Cagney, or at least they kind of put Cagney into a corner in the early 40s 
because Cagney in the late 30s had supported the, uh, you know, those nine blacks, uh, the, what was it, the Spotsville? The Scottsboro Boys? Yeah, right. That was the that was one one of my grandfather's. He was one of the lawyers on that case. Oh, really? Yeah. And what was his name? Isaac Schmushkin. Well, you know, uh, Cagney had contributed money to their defense, mm-hmm. and which meant that he was giving money to communists. Because communists were funding the defense, were were respond were a big part of the defense. defense. Yeah, you're telling. I'm uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You're telling a, a very important part of history. Well, anyway, I, you know that that was it. Yeah. And so you're saying that he that he and his brother created that the Yank that uh, the I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy project to to prove that they were good patriotic that Americans. They were- Exactly, exactly. Got Which, it. Uh, y- you know, they did brilliantly. But it's just funny that, not funny, haha, but it's just interesting to see the timing of that. And then, like 10 years later, uh, the same thing kind of happened with Lucille Ball. Yep. But, uh, yeah, and it, it you it makes you going back to sort of the di- the dynamics that that created. It just creates this, like the idea of going after a Lucille Ball or a James Cagney isn't necessarily to destroy Lucille Ball or James Cagney. It's to get them to bend the knee. That's right. And then you have these very very powerful icons who actually are you, know, you can pull their strings. You know how to get them, make sure that Lucille Ball is never going to like to go on a TV show in front of all of America and make an important political statement in defense of something, you know, in opposition to something like lynching or blacklisting. That's the crux of the entire thing. And that's also the focus of my documentary and podcast, Yeshua versus Frankenstein in 3D. That is the crux of it. The controlling of the artist in Hollywood is where the real drama takes place. You know, I've often thought that all the drama that is fabricated and concocted and cobbled together into movies, all of that drama, all of the Marvel super, all of that, Sturm and drunk, drunk, Sturm and drunk. Yeah, all of that, all of that is like empty cigarette smoke compared to the drama, which entails controlling the artist. You know, I, I went to school with. Robin Williams, and when he committed suicide, well, it it took about two years before the narrative could be changed definitively to, 
oh, well, Robin had this kind of disease and he was depressed. And the one thing that they never say is Robin was not in control of the content of his films. And that causes a very strong reaction in the soul of the artist who is being controlled. Mm. I'm not just talking about Robin Williams. I'm talking about everyone who works in Hollywood is controlled. And this is the topic of t- t- uh, the the title of your podcast. You when you sent it to me, it immediately got me so curious. And I'm, you just mentioned it. You just brought it into the conversation. Can you tell us more about that? Because I'm is this a podcast you're in the middle of producing? T- fill us in on on some of the details of this project. Yes, I am in production, and the subtitle of the work tells it all the the subtitle of yeshua versus frankenstein in 3d is how teddy adorno and his heathen venetians used media to cancel the christ control the crowd and color code the globe essentially The subject matter is how media is absolutely the core of control used by the ruling elite since since the Renaissance. You know, I say... From Michelangelo to Michael Jackson, the color coding of Western civilization has been meticulously and very successfully carried out. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago. And I was asking her if she had gone to Rome and it, and if she had gone to Rome, had she ever been to the Sistine Chapel? And she said, oh, yes. And I said, uh, well, did you look up and see everything, of course, that Michelangelo painted? And of course, she said, oh, yes. And I said, and did you notice how God the Father and Adam and Eve and all of the disciples and saints and apostles, did you notice how they're all white? And all of the depictions of demons and devils are cold black. Did you notice that? And she said, well, yeah, I never thought about that, but yeah, yeah, you're right. So, yeah. You know, uh, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the greatest artists in the world. And certainly Michelangelo would be in that category. They are under control to color code the content. 
from Michelangelo to Michael Jackson. You yeah. think Michael Jackson? I mean, Michael Jackson. Oh, Lordy. Make sure you listen to my podcast and, and watch the movie when it comes out. Because the, the, the issue that Michael Jackson dealt with, the c- color of his skin, is the same issue Michelangelo was dealing with when he was painting the Sistine Chapel. And you know, the Venetians, the Venetians invented bleach cream in the 1400s and began marketing it. And they're still doing it today. Hmm. You, you, uh, Andras, I, I take it that you've heard of bleach cream. Well, yes, yes, I'm. It, but maybe assume that the listener doesn't know. Could you tell us what bleach cream is? Yeah, bleach cream is a very strong chemical that leaches out melanin, the color, so that if you are black or brown or yellow or red, you can take out the pigment by using this cream. Why someone would want to do such a thing, uh, you know, speaks to uh, the craziness of, to the how, to the wrongness of the world, and why we have a podcast called The World is Wrong. Um, Let's be specific. Let's be specific. That's why I'm doing the documentary and the podcast, Andras. Yes. I mean, what it speaks to is a concerted effort to push and promote whiteness to the detriment and bleaching of blackness. Uh, yeah, it. Uh, boy, one item can speak to so much because it's also it's also like if you made that bleach. And then you forced people to put it on themselves. That would be one kind of horrific. But to make that bleach and convince people to purchase it, to pay you to put it on your on themselves, that's a that's a just a whole other level of horror. Um, that's right. And I I imagine that's what you're getting at. There is also a G. G as in the word go, there's a G speak aspect to Yeshua versus Frankenstein in 3D. Do you know what G speak is? I have no idea. Okay, well, G speak, actually, you do have a a very good idea. Uh, John Undercoffler, who I met, face-to-face in 2009 at Sundance when I went back there with Soderbergh. John Undercoffler invented G-Speak, which is like the ultimate cinematic editing uh, package ever conceived. But you were, like me, first exposed to it 
during the movie Spielberg did uh, with Tom Cruise, why am I constantly blacking out on this movie's title? It starts with an M. Minority uh, Report? Yes, right. Minority. You know the scene when Tom Cruise puts on the glove and then he starts moving images yeah. and audio around? Well, that is John Undercoffler. That's his invention. It's called G-Speak. G stands for gesture or gestural speak. G-Speak, gesture speak. And his, he demonstrated for me uh, his system. And it is just so incredible. And from both a editing and projection standpoint, it's the future. It's the future. Someday, just like everybody now has a cell phone, someday everybody's going to have a G-Speak uh, in their, I don't know, a, a G-Speak app or something that will give them access to what John Undercoffler has invented. But that's going to be, I only bring that up to let you know that it's a part of the uh, distribution projection of the documentary, the movie, not the podcast, the movie of Yeshua versus Frankenstein. When you say that, I imagine that that's the 3D aspect. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's all tied in. And that is, that's never been done before. But you have an idea from the, you know, the scene in uh, Minority Report. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, that is one of the most memorable scenes from that film. I think maybe there there's something like again that's the synchronicity uh, seeker in me. It's like when there are things, certain images that speak to us, and we don't know why. That it's more like oh well, that's because that's part of the future. That is really part of the future, and so we're yeah. not just seeing it; we're recognizing it. The part of us that lives outside of time. Um, can I ask you one other question? Just to, because of the yeah. because you're you're producing the podcast. Is it an audio version of the film or is it a deep dive discussion of the material that's in the film or is it something else? I would say the combination of both. Um, and, you know, uh, what has always, I don't, the more I have been exploring the podcasting landscape, the more it seems to me to be extremely cinematic uh yes you know you know the best of it so, is yes right right you know for you i mean like beginning in 2016 people started telling me wendell you need to start doing a podcast all you got to do is just just talking to the mic but podcasting you know, that's like saying that. That the Mercury Theater is just people standing around a mic doing Shakespeare. <laughs> right. right. I, I mean, 
there is a lot more to it than just me getting a blue yeti podcasting mic and talking i i guess like like any like the people who listen to this podcast must be like me in some level of saying i want to hear and see this where where are you at in the process of of the of production on this and how can we help oh well you know how to pray pray for me (laughs) i I can do that. I, I can do that. Seriously, are you considering doing any kind of crowdfunding for this project? Is there Are there ways that, uh, that if there are people who are filmmakers in Michigan who are listening to this and are like, oh, I, I want to work on this project. How can I help? Do you need camera people? Do you need... Like where are, have, you, have you already shot this? Have you already recorded this? Is it in the writing stages? I'm sorry to press on this, but now you got me very uh, inspired and hungry and selfish, actually. I want to hear it. Yes, it's all been shot. It's all been shot. Yes, indeed it has. But, you know, you ask about crowdfunding. Yes, there's no independent film without independent money, that's for sure. And in 2014, I enlisted the support of the Chameleon Street producer, Dan Lawton, and his wife, Heather. They helped me assemble a very, a very uh, well put together Kickstarter campaign for Yeshua versus Frankenstein, which You know, with Kickstarter, if you don't meet your goal, all the money that you did raise goes back to the investor. Uh, We did not meet our goal, so, so that did not work out. And uh, at the moment, I'm working with Arbelos Films on the uh, production of a trailer, which we're going to be using for the Blu-ray release of Chameleon Street as part of the bonus features. Well, then we're editing. We need to get... Oh, sorry, go on. Keep keep talking. No, I was just saying that we're editing that right now. And that's the trailer... For the documentary. Exactly. Got it. So I'm obviously very excited about this project, and I'm sure that the people who watch Chameleon Street, I think that's the that's the big question for anyone who loves this film, is not just why wasn't there something more from this guy, but what else is there from this guy? So this is essentially the follow-up you're going to be putting the trailer for the follow-up to chameleon street on the blu-ray of chameleon street yes exactly exactly and that's just incredibly exciting uh i've only been carrying this film around for a few years skinner myers who turned me on to it he's been carrying it around for several more you've obviously been carrying it around and the people who 
were part of that excitement at Sundance have been carrying this film around for decades. And the idea that there's a, that there will be a next word from you as an artist is just very, very exciting. Um, so, well, you know, the funny thing is about what you're saying, the funny thing, not funny, ha ha, but funny, ironic, I guess, is that this project is, gee, I find it hard to even say this because people don't take you seriously when you really tell them that you've been working on a project for 25 plus years. Oh, yeah. But one thing I'll say is, Andras, this project, Yeshua versus Frankenstein in 3D, is pure dynamite. <laughs> and believe you me, as soon as it is released, people are going to be fascinated because it's absolutely amazing what kind of power the media has to shape the minds of men, women, and children. You know, Malcolm X, before he died, a couple of years before he died, Malcolm X said, that the media is the most powerful entity on the planet earth yeah that the you know the media has the power to make heroes of villains and villains of heroes and that is that is at the core of the concern of Yeshua versus Frankenstein in 3D. And I, uh, I will take you up on your offer. I'm, I'm sure there are many people, although there are uh, huge forces that would like to not see that message reach the people who want that met, want to hear it I think that there are many people also a majority of the people who are hungry for something like this and I don't doubt it at all I talk with people all the time who uh, because of the kind of dynamics you're talking about find themselves perfectly positioned to really devote themselves to a masterpiece that takes decades. I'm not saying that yours will be that masterpiece, but we have to work in the realm of we have to be put mm -hmm. in the place where we have to work in the realm of all we can do is make the masterpiece, paint our Sistine Chapel or unpaint our Sistine Chapel as it were. Um mm -hmm. and I totally yeah, that's you're on that trajectory and I I I'm very happy to be having this conversation with you because as I as we started, the story that I was told was about an artist who was stopped. And it's really great to talk to that artist and find that he is anything but stopped. 
You're right. And part of the story of Yeshua versus Frankenstein in 3D is a is a, an incisive examination of the Roswell incident of 1947. You know, I took three film crews to Roswell between 1997 and the year 2000. And I have amazing footage, talking head footage of uh, the various individuals who were actually involved with the Roswell incident, hired by the Pentagon to produce and put it over. And that footage is extremely compelling. And then we also interviewed all of the leading ufologists like Stanton Friedman and Michael Hesseman and Linda Moulton Howe and, and Yeshua versus Frankenstein in 3D points out that the same the same use of media to sell racism for 400 years in America is the same media used to sell aliens between 1947 and 2022. This just gets better and better. Ufology, that, that's like a, that's a definitely a third rail territory. And I think whereas the commercial impulse is to avoid third rails, the artistic impulse is to charge directly at them. So, like I said, this just gets more and more interesting. The more you, uh, the more you don't leave out of your narrative that is left out of most narratives, it just makes it that more compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm so excited to, to see this. I'm also, I, I'm also sitting on, I, 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 I know we've been talking for a while here, so I don't want to tax your time, but I did. Oh, well, by the way, yeah. uh, by the way, there's one point that we sloughed over in the beginning and never got back to, but in your outline that you emailed to me, you mentioned this and I wanted you to know that I've been waiting for somebody to bring this up for 30, 32, 33 years. I've been waiting since I put it in the movie. I've been waiting and you're the first one. If I could give you an award, I, <laughs> I would send you a bottle of Dom Perignon because I have waited for someone to ask me why Chameleon Street begins with an audio word, quote, now, unquote. And you are the first one to ask. So, well, yes, please tell us. Well, I'll just say that the voice you hear saying the word now is the voice of John Gilgood. And that one word was lifted 
from his acting the role of Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2, which is when Hamlet is talking to Horatio about the special providence in the fall of a sparrow. And he says, if it be now, tis not to come. And if it be not to come, it will be now. That's the now that was taken. It will be now. That, that now was taken from John Gilgood's Hamlet. And since I had not paid Cademan Records or anybody, I was so paranoid about people recognizing that it was John Gilgood. You know, we had to pay like, what, $7,000 for 14 seconds of Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. so you have to pay for all that stuff. And I was so paranoid when I put now by John Gilgood in there and, and we hadn't notified anybody. I said, hey, to the sound guy, uh, hey, fiddle around with the treble and the bass and change it around a little bit. And, and, and so he did that. And ever since, I don't know why it is, but when I listen to that now, it does it. It doesn't sound as much like John Gilgood as it does Wendell Harris for yeah. some reason. Yeah, yeah. And I want to point out that when you did the reading, when you 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 gave the now what my old acting coach Morgan Shepard used to call the positive ambiguity. He was a Royal Shakespeare guy, and so came up at around the you know around the same time as Gilgood. And when you said the now it wasn't now it was now it was the, right. and that is the right. quality of the of that now in the phrasing and that's part of what makes it so sort of wonderfully disorienting because it's not a now it's a it's a now and then you see the and then you see the this is this is based upon the life of Douglas Street, the the language that shows up on the screen, and then we're into the movie. And exactly. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. As an art, well, I, I'm very, I'm very happy to have found that to have uh, found that Easter egg and be the one who's asking uh, you about it. And I also know, as an artist who puts things like that in my own work, how uh, how frustrating it is to wait for that. So I'm. Uh, I hope that eventually I'll get some. I'll get some of that myself. There's where people figure out the little tricks I put into the albums I've made or the the things I put out there. Um, I have a bunch of other quest, little like just sort of nerdy questions about Chameleon Street. Do you mind if we just sort of like? You don't feel like you have to. You, you can even say I don't even want to answer that one. But I just have several. Do you mind if I ask you them and we can see if we can get through uh, through some of the nerdy things I, I wonder about this film. Let's see if we can get through. Okay. So Chameleon Street seems to share DNA with two Woody Allen films, Zelig and Take the Money and Run. And there's even a scene where uh, 
Street is going in to see Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, and in the other side of the frame, there's a mural with Woody Allen in it. And I'm just wondering, I mean, he was such a uh, sort of a cultural mainstay in the 80s at this time where you're developing as an artist. Were you at all aware of that shared DNA between your film and his? Well, let me say that let me say that in 1990, uh, when reviews of Chameleon Street began coming out, Lord knows that, you know, many of them were constantly bringing up Zelig. In fact, uh, and that was especially true in Europe. All of the Italian and German reviews, some of the titles even of the of the reviews, a black Zelig, the black Zelig, Wendell Harris is the black Zelig. Uh, that was that that was brought up quite a bit, and Andras, I am. I am always, you know, extremely forthcoming about various influences that came into play during the entire process and gestation of Chameleon Street. And I don't have any problem with sharing, you know, any of the information regarding the creative process. I must say that, and what year did Zelig come out? Eight, it was late 80s. I think it was 83. I think I actually made it in my notes here somewhere. Uh, yeah, 1983. Yeah, because I had definitely seen it, you know, while assembling Chameleon Street. And Zelig never really came to my mind as anything that was, you know, utilized in. I mean, I liked the film very much. I, I, I was very impressed with it, you know, in terms of what he had achieved uh, with all the you know, combining and compositing of images. But I, I'm just trying to say that it was not like a major player of inspiration for Chameleon Street. Got it. I, although I, I'm, I'm not surprised that other, that, um, that reviewers made that connection. And I actually was wondering, I had that in my mind, that phrase, uh, I'm embarrassed, but Black Zelig was like, I was curious, was this ever pitched as that? Was that ever in the conversation? So, uh, like I said, we're just going to move through these because I have several questions. Um, there's mm -hmm. another question I have. Wait, oh, wait, hold on one second. Andras, what are you talking about when you said 
that there was some connection between Beauty and the Beast and a Woody Allen poster? Oh, yeah. In that shot where you're going into where Doug Street is going in to see Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast and speaking about it in uh, voiceover to the right, there's a mural that has like three or four uh, famous people in it. And the one that's closest to the wall is Woody Allen's face. I'm pretty sure. But it's a mural, not a poster. Not right? a, yeah, it's just a mural. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Um, okay. Gotcha. But, you know, I, I'm, uh, we'll get to it in another question, but I'm very, maybe I'll just jump to that. So I'm very interested in synchronicities in film. And one of the wild synchronicities for me in this film is Willie Horton. So you are making a film about Douglas Street and he has this uh, extortion scheme against the baseball player Willie Horton. And that is played for what it's played for in the film. But then the film comes out and just a, and just a couple years later, George Bush uses a totally different Willie Horton in what is now used in colleges as a textbook example of dog whistle racism to win the uh, presidential election. Uh, Maybe I'm getting my time wrong. I guess what I'm curious about is that there's a, when I watch the film, I can't, whenever you talk about Willie Horton, there's this buzzer going off about George Bush. And I'm wondering if whether that was, if that happened after the film or before the film, and again, now I'm really questioning my my timeline. Um, how do you relate to that? Like, do you when you hear Willie Horton, what do you think? And did that change from when you were writing the film to when it came out to now? No, not when writing it, and only after the film was made did the connection to the other Willie Horton uh, occur to me, but it was not part of the film's gestation. And interestingly enough, if something else had been put into the film that was almost added, I dare say you wouldn't even be asking that question because I had in 1988, as the film was being edited, and it took a year to edit, and I always tell people, well, not always, but sometimes I tell people, just to give them perspective, it took four months to edit Gone with the Wind. It took 11 months to edit Chameleon Street. Of course, you know, with Gone with the Wind, they had four editors working. Uh, but you can Community. see this is a this is a, a a very excitingly edited film, sonically as well as visually. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, I'm, well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, what what did not get put into the film, but almost did. But the only reason I didn't put it in the film is I did not want to take two to three months trying to get the rights to it. But now keep in mind, keep in mind, Andras, this is 1988. Mm-hmm. And there was a beautiful, exciting, socially 
or the in term now is social justice, which, but um, it was politically very astute. A, a wonderful uh, four, 14, eight to 14 second clip of OJ Simpson making a comment. And brother, that clip almost made it into the film. The only thing that stopped me was I didn't have the time to try to get the rights. And I thank God in heaven that that clip did not get in, the, because there's no way you can put a, a clip of OJ in anything without it taking over the entire thing. I mean, it, yeah. Uh, any, and I don't know if you remember or not, or if you can remember, people seem to have totally forgotten, but, but not black people, black people remember. In 1988, the love and admiration for O.J. Simpson was extremely strong mm -hmm. by 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 everybody, whites and blacks. Absolutely. So it never even occurred to me that it might be superseded by you know a double murder. Uh, five years later but anyway i thank god that we didn't put that clip in and yet and this is where i'm getting back to that the synchronicity of the willie horton thing is uh, this is just something that i think is true of the the art of film because it is as the opening line is it's a very it's it's a very immediate captures the now whenever you're making it and i feel like it opens up an aperture on reality that brings in things that the artist could never have intended because you're going to be seeing that now against a different now every time it comes out. And so that right. attracts a kind of synchronicity. And I'm right. just curious for you, as the Willie Horton story developed while you're in the production of this film, was there, I don't know, when I have synchronicities while I'm creating a work of art, it sort of spurs me on, even if they're kind of scary or ugly synchronicities, but the fact that sort of the art is speaking back to me in a way in a way that I couldn't control because of events in the world. And I'm just kind of curious, did you have any of that experience while you while this story developed in the world while you were developing your own story? No, Andras. My main concern. Yeah, I'm just crazy. I get it. <laughs> that's that's me. My 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 main concern during that period of time, when when we were dealing with Willie Horton, the baseball player, my main concern was having our legal department contact the Horton family so that we would not have any problem with the Horton family, the Willie Horton Detroit right. Tiger. The baseball star, uh, yes. Exactly, exactly. Got it. So uh, th that's where that focus was. And as you might imagine, as you might imagine, there are a million details to be commandeered during the making of a production. Oh, yeah. And... 
you know, success or failure is going to be de determined by how you dealt with those details, whether delegated or not. And the detail of the Willie Horton that you're talking about was not part of my concern at that part of at that point. Got it. Well, then let's move. Keep moving on. The film has many Michigan celebrities. The Barber Brothers, Paula McGee, Detroit Mayor, Coleman Young. Those are the ones that I was able to, that I saw while I was watching the film. But are there more and maybe more obscure and interesting Michigan celebrities that you got into this film that you like to direct uh, viewers' attention to? Only one. There's a quick clip of my father, Dr. Wendell B. Harris Sr., in the uh, in the flash cut of the, you know, when Street is uh, in the cell of Smooth, about to be approached sexually by Smooth, and he's watching TV and he's changing the channels on the TV. And at one point you see a kickboxing clip and my father is in that clip watching the kickboxing uh, bout. That's the only thing. Uh, there were so many, so many almost rans would have ran uh, you know like the masquerade ball which you have not asked about and i don't necessarily want to get into it but the masquerade ball was an ordeal um from beginning to end from for three years as i was writing it and while we were producing it over a three-day period the masquerade ball was a monster and it was made a monster mainly because we could not get a group to play for the masquerade ball that's my question about the masquerade ball is fatima studex a real band that band was was made up that title was made up for the film, but that but a band did occur at the Masquerade Ball that Street did attend. A band was there, but they were not named Phantomus Judex. But the people that we wanted to get for Phantomus Judex were Thompson Twins were approached. Till Tuesday was a pro. Oh, approach. man, that would have been so great. Amy yeah, Mann and John you. Bryan in 1980. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Till Tuesday. Uh, Till Tuesday and Thompson Twins. Uh, eventually, after negotiation, they, they essentially turned us down. Patrice Russian we approached. And... The one that I had thought we had secured, George Clinton. And at the last minute, like a week 
or even less than a week before George Clinton was supposed to show up, his people called up demanding that we send $10,000 immediately uh, to George Clinton or he wouldn't be showing up. And then he wanted another 5,000 when he got to Flint. Anyway, uh, that was not the deal that we had set upon. And whatever monetary uh, requests George Clinton made or his people, his reps, we could not at that exact moment provide them with that money. And so they said, okay, well, we're out of here. And then we had to get a replacement. But my point is that every time we talked to somebody, whether it was Till Tuesday or Patrice Russian or George Clinton or Thompson Twins, every time I would rewrite the script to accommodate the group and the song that we'd be using from that group. And that became such an ordeal because, you know, like five times I had to totally rewrite the script. And ultimately, um, we, we used Dimitri uh, Muganis, a, a uh, punk rocker out of Manhattan, who was a close friend of the producer, Dan Lawton. And Dan called up Dimitri like at the last minute, and he agreed to fly in and do it. And uh, we were so, so grateful because for some reason, the musicians, securing musicians for the group Phantomus Judex in the Masquerade Ball scene was almost or probably as hard as finding a female actor to play Gabrielle. Wow. Well, somewhere out there, Amy Mann's kicking herself. That's all I'm saying. Uh, she should have been. That would have been amazing. That would have been amazing. Uh, okay. I got to ask you about another, but there's one actor in this film who really stood out to me and I, I watched them and I just thought, have I seen them anyplace else before? I feel like I have, but maybe it's just I'm hooking into some alternate reality in which they went on to become the the next Molly Ringwald. Uh, the actress who played Melissa, Paula McGee's haiku spouting secretary who catches uh, Street's spelling error, uh, she is so compelling to me in that just that one little scene she has. And then at the end, uh, she's featured several times in the telling of the frog and the scorpion story. Can you tell me about this actress? Her name is Colette Haywood. And I'm, I'm very glad you brought her up because I meant to bring her up. In telling you that long story about all the people that we contacted, uh, it was right before actually I offered it to Attila Shabazz that I want you to know 
if Colette Haywood had said yes, Colette Haywood would have been playing Gabrielle because I offered the role to Colette like in mid-1987 because it was obvious to me after I auditioned her that Colette would be a wonderful Gabrielle. And the only reason that she said no is I forget where I forget where Colette was going to school. It was one of the black schools, Meharry or Fisk or Tuskegee. She was going to some school and she had to get back. And and she refused to play Gabrielle. But I was so impressed with her that I demanded that she play Melissa and that we put her into the scorpion and frog uh, epilogue because I'll tell you something I've never told anybody, even Colette, but Andras, there's a lot of talk about, you know, directors having a certain rapport with a certain actor that is kind of beyond the rapport experienced by the general uh, run-of-the-mill actors that one is working with. Run-of-the-mill, I don't mean average. I mean all the actors that one directs, you have to connect with. And you have to find some language between the two of you. But once in a while, you find an actor that you are in such simpatical relations you can almost think what you want and they do it you it's almost telepathic you know joseph von sternberg talks about that with marlena dietrich mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know there have been all, all kinds of wonderful relationships between certain directors and certain actors. And I, I never had that until working with Colette. And I also put together, and it's gonna be included on the Blu-ray in the bonus features. I put together a four minute talking head collage of Colette called Colette Vignette. <laughs> which actually won a Sony prize um, because I could be directing Colette and all I would have to do is think what I wanted her to do next and she would do it. I have, it was just amazing. And, you know, you and I both know that Angela Leslie is absolutely stunning as Gabrielle. Well, once in a while, Angela should send Colette Haywood a thank you note because if Colette has said yes, Angela would not have been cast. I, I would have, I would have cast Colette in March of 
87 if she had accepted the role. Yeah, the road the road not taken because uh, yeah she she has you can I guess you can feel that you, maybe you feel that relationship in the in the way it's shot. Uh, but she's a very compelling actress. And is it possible that I saw her in anything else besides this that isn't listed on IMDb? Did she go on to a career in acting or did she continue acting in any way? No, uh, she she has published books of poetry, I know. But I, I, I have not actually been in contact with Colette uh, for 20 years now. Um, but she she did not follow that path and as i had mentioned to you before maybe i didn't but angela leslie had been in several feature films prior to chameleon street she had been in a collision course with jay leno and a couple other features but after chameleon street came out and I should make this very clear because I shared this with you the other day. Yeah. I mentioned that, you know, Bill Cosby had destroyed her career. But I should also mention that Angela is the one that got away. You know, all of the others actually ended up being raped or ravished by Cosby, but Angela got away. But Bill Cosby was so vindictive that he destroyed people, whether he actually s succeeded in sleeping with them or not. And he, and he went out of his way, out of his way to destroy Angela's career. And as I mentioned to you yesterday, Andras, a career in acting on film or blacks or whites is a very delicate proposition and it's easy to get derailed yep. especially by someone with the power and pull and reach of bill cosby yeah yeah i, I don't i if there are more details you want to share I'm I'm sure there this is a place to share them and if there if you'd prefer not to I don't really feel comfortable prodding Well it's up you know it's up to you you can you know you can go and google Angela Leslie and Bill Cosby yourself and get all kinds of information and you intimated yesterday that you might be contacting her if you do contact her that's fine it, it, if you don't, that's fine. But what, whatever you want for your show. But I just wanted you to know that although he destroyed her career, he did not actually rape her. She got away from him. And that's what triggered his angry response as far as impeding her career. Yeah, no, it's, it's what you say about the how delicate an acting career is because it really like as as a 
as someone who's an actor and also is what I would consider a creative artist, and I think there are their difference because I think of, of acting as being an interpretive art, which means that you need to have someone create the thing and put you in it in order for you to be able to do your art. And that is a very different thing than being a writer or a painter or a musician who can go into that, I'm building a masterpiece space. Um, so yeah, I will be reaching out to Angela, I, I, especially because now that we've discussed her here, I, I'd love to hear, feel like it's only right to get her her voice on this. Uh, so, uh, Justin, you know, com- continuing to expose and reveal the the black image as portrayed for the last 100 years in American cinema. I don't know if I told you this or not, but between 2004 and 2012, I received from Hollywood, Hollywood Studios, well, three were major Hollywood studios and one was an independent filmmaker. During that span of time, Andras, I received offers of appearing in four films. And each of these non-related projects, I mean, these were all different studios, different production companies, different times between 2004 and 2012. All of them, all of the roles that I was offered in those four films were pedophile roles and the concerted the concerted effort to get Wendell Harris up on the screen as a pedophile has <laughs> you know uh yeah Chameleon Street Chameleon Street presents something that they would love to either suppress or denigrate. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> Tell me, how many pedophile roles have you been offered lately? Um, I, think, uh, I don't think I've been offered any pedophile roles. I mean, I've been a little bit maybe too vocal in my support for Woody Allen. So some people have leveled, <laughs> leveled that claim, that, that charge at me for, uh, but uh, a sort short of that. No, but you did appear in one film that I, that I think of as a great film, uh, Steven Soderbergh's out of sight. And you did not play a pedophile in that you played a cop. How did that come about? That came about because of two words. Steven Soderbergh. And let's see, that was 19... Steven had played a part for me in the film that I've been working on for 25 years. Steven had filmed that footage in Detroit, and that was in what September of 
1998, uh, around there. Anyway, um, Stephen, in my documentary, Yeshua versus Frankenstein in 3D, Stephen plays Theodore Adorno in the recreated Adorno documentarian scenes. And it was while we were shooting his scenes as Adorno that he mentioned Out of Sight, which was going to start shooting the next month in first Miami, then LA, then back to Detroit. So anyway, uh, that's how that came about. And just so, just so you know, uh, Stephen, Stephen has been a great, great supporter of Chameleon Street and Wendell B. Harris Jr. And uh, Stephen is responsible along with Armin White of beating the other judges into giving the grand jury prize to Chameleon Street in January of 1990. I, you know, I, I was told that Stephen and Armand had baseball bats and they, <laughs> and they, uh, threatened the other judges. No, I'm just joking. Am I ever, someday am I going to be interviewing a director who's like, we should have won at Sundance, but Steven Soderbergh threatened me with a baseball bat. <laughs> Wendell Harris thinks he was suppressed. I was suppressed. Right. Uh, oh, gosh. That reminded me of something. You sounded like uh, Ian Richardson as Marat. In Marat Saad just then. Oh, my! so funny. That's my my acting coach. My old acting coach, Morgan Shepard, was in the original production of that. And I heard so many stories about that when I was a young actor. The original <laughs> production in England? Yeah, the, our, the, the Royal Shakespeare, the Peter Brook production. Who is this? Morgan Shepard. He's no longer with us, sadly. W. Morgan Shepard. He, uh, what would you know him from? He played uh, the punk rock character Blank Reg in the Max Hedrum series. He was in, he was in the Elephant Man as one of like not a character. He played, he's a character actor. He was in. I remember, I remember Max Hedrum. Yeah, uh, he's the he, old punk rocker. He, right. He was your teacher. Yeah, my my uh, acting coach from when I was in, very young. In rock. England. In, in the United States, he came to America to do Max Hedrum. And I, I was like, well, I got to be in your class. And then we became friends and we're, we're friends right up till the, the last weeks of his life. Not that we became not friends. <laughs> last time I saw him was in the, a few, a, a, like a month before he died. And I still miss him terribly. But he was, yeah, he was a very, very special actor and a, and a great yeah. teacher to a lot of people. I guess the last big question I have for you. I think it's kind of fun. Maybe it's, uh, is the use of the scorpion and the frog, frog and the scorpion story at the end of your film? Because right. 
as far as I can tell, the only time before Chameleon Street that that showed up was in the Orson Welles film, Mr. Arkadin. Arkadin? How do you pronounce Arkadin. that? Arkadin. Arkadin. Thank you. See, there's my lazy American voice taking out the opportunity to relax around the big ah sound. Arkadin. As far as I can tell, yeah. the, your use of that story is the first use of that story in film since the Wells film. But since yeah. Chameleon Street, it has gotten to the point where it'll show up. It's shown up in so many other films. And now if it shows up in a TV show, like I was recently watching and it showed up on a TV show and I was like, come on, do we need to hear this story? That's just lazy writing. Now, if it, it's almost become cliche, but at the time when you used it, it I think it was the first use since Wells. So I was curious if you were aware, were you, were you referencing the Wells film? What was the inspiration for you to put that story at the end of your film? And have you noticed that it has been used a lot since then? Well, let me say that... I've been aware of the story since I was 11 years old and I first read about that story being the end of Mr. Arkadin. So I was very aware of it since I was a child and very aware that Orson had used it. But, uh, it seemed it seemed at the time to be extremely appropriate so i added it into the ending and one of the things about chameleon street that certain decisions were made and not to soft pedal soft pedal uh doug's character but I, I will say that two changes were added to make him perhaps more palatable. Number one, Doug has a great adoration and respect for German film. And if we had stayed true to that, Doug would have ended up speaking German and using German. And I wanted to try to put a romantic edge onto Doug's character. And speaking German did not seem to actually help that. Uh, the last thing I thought we needed was to add a German you know, the violence of Germany's language mm -hmm. to Street's character and all the baggage that German, you know, Germany carries. Um, and just French, so, French lends itself to a different kind of pretension that really works in those scenes. Exactly, exactly. And, and so that was, that was a definite change that, yes, I did make. I made him love French film, which he liked, but if I had stayed true to Doug's passion level, I, 
I think he had more passion for German film than French. So I changed that to French, uh, his passion. And then we added the, uh, you know, frog scorpion story at the end, also, in a sense, to make him more palatable in attempting to give some more explanation beside his own actions to the essence of his character, the core of his character. Do you think that Douglas Street would be aware of the Wells quote, or is that you as the director being aware of the Wells quote? Mm. You know, it's funny because I do think that when I first began interviewing Doug in 1985, I do think that I mentioned to him about the frog and the scorpion. We had quite a bit of talk about film, quite a bit. And, you know, I said to Doug near the end of our relationship that his method of dealing with people is always, is always basically the same. He, he bonds with you. He bonds with you by glomming on to your main interest. You know, he, he forms a relationship built supposedly on a reflected passion of whatever your passion is. So, you know, for me, he sized me up immediately. That film, cinema was my passion. And so over a three-year period, Andras, he, he, he essentially, like a chameleon, he became a filmmaker. He was constantly talking to me about how he was working on a script of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, and that he wanted to make that and direct that into a feature film. And he literally became a filmmaker for the three years that we worked together. And that is, as he has often confessed, that is the the modus operandi. Or is it modus operandi? Uh, I've heard the I pronunciation, but I never trust unless someone's sure, and I'm not. So, but let's go with operandi. Either one. You, you have both recordings. Yes. That's all there. Right. <laughs> so you can make me sound less ignorant with your editing. Uh, I if it, it, I don't think that's necessary. I think you're. I think. I think part of uh, intelligence is being uh, willing to be unsure. So, hey, listen. Here's the deal about that. 
And it's funny you would say that because it's been on my mind the last couple of months. Because look, here it is now. At the age of 67, I've spent a lifetime acquiring quote unquote knowledge, reading books, reading, reading, reading. Understand. The more that I learn, the more I understand that I know nothing. And that is the amazing paradox of knowledge. The more you learn, the more you know, man, you don't know nothing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I, I believe that's called wisdom. You learn, en you get enough knowledge and you apply intelligence to it which is just experience and context. And then eventually it, le it leads to wisdom, which is just, I don't know. The more I know, the more I know that I don't know. Um, which again is part of what makes me so excited about your next project. And it, it just, it also leaves me curious about something else because again projecting my own story onto you when i had my hollywood experience and i still i'm i'm speaking to you from hollywood right now right but uh you can be in the geography of hollywood and not be in the machinery of hollywood right but m my experience when i physically left hollywood for the first time i went back to a, m the town that i grew up in olympia washington uh, to take care of some family business. And then I ended up just being, you know, remaining there, sometimes being very frustrated with it, sometimes drawing a great deal of inspiration and uh, just maybe some sense of safety from it. And you are calling me from, we're speaking with you in Flint, Michigan. And I just, I'd love to hear what your, your relationship is with that place and how it's sustained you uh, as an artist. Well, that's a very good question because Flint is so amazing. And what is really amazing is everybody in Flint that we approached for assistance in producing Chameleon Street, everybody in Flint just bent over backwards to assist us in every way possible. That's why I say to you, uh, you, you know, when you spend $1.5 million of investors' money and everybody in Michigan bends over backwards to help you, and then you produce the film, it is lauded by Sundance and critics all over the world and then is almost immediately suppressed in distribution. You know, what do you say to all those people in Flint and in Michigan who bent over backwards? And, and nobody, nobody gets married in order to have a divorce and no filmmaker makes a film in order to have it suppressed and put on a shelf. So, yeah. So I, I I gather from what you're saying that those the and the investors did they ever make their money back? 
Yeah, the the uh, the investors who the five white investors who invested ninety five thousand, they made their money back. The two hundred and twenty five odd thousand dollars from black investors, they made their money back. My brother Hobart, who put in 120,000, and my mother and father, who have since died, uh, and who invested 585,000, they were only paid back like 200,000 before they died. So the Harris family at the moment is still out approximately four to five hundred thousand dollars and you know i've said this before also yeah i don't know you may want to cut it out ultimately but i'll i'll say it anyway because i think it proves the point it explains the power of Hollywood distribution and what happens when you have it, what happens when you don't. You know, there's a movie called Weekend at Bernie's, which came out around the same time Chameleon Street came out. Weekend at Bernie's received Hollywood distribution. Chameleon Street did not. Now, for the last 30 years, Andras, I have conducted a personal Wendell Harris Chameleon Street poll all over the world. I ask people all over the world, have you ever heard of Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> I've never, ever in 30 years heard anybody say no to that question. Everybody I ask has heard of Weekend at Bernie's. I asked those same people, have you ever heard of Chameleon Street? Andras, I have never yet in 30 years heard anybody say, oh yeah, yeah, I heard of Chameleon Street. Even in Flint, Michigan, if I walk down the street or anywhere in Flint and ask, have you heard of Chameleon Street? They'll say no. And I say all that to say that Hollywood distribution is more than ubiquitous. It is, I don't know, what's the word? It's, it is. It's fundamental. Like in, in the, the hierarchy of needs, it is. Yeah, it's like it's like oxygen. You know, you either have it and you can breathe and exist, or you don't have it, and it's as you say, it's hard to exist. The world that you what you're describing is an example of the world being wrong. A world in which everyone, including me, which who has never seen Weekend at Bernie's and is really uninterested in it, is aware of it, and and hungry for films like Chameleon Street and didn't hear about it until I heard about it from a friend, which is not this at all, which is happening outside of distribution channels. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Well, this is why we're, this is what, why I, we have this podcast and what we're trying to uh, address. And I think 
maybe if we could go out on, I don't know, paying it forward, backwards, and all around, are there films that you think that the world is wrong about in a similar way? Like a film, films that have meant a lot to you, but that you know have been denied distribution to the majority of the film-going world? Well, yeah, that's a good point. And once in a while I make it, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I'm always talking about the suppression of Chameleon Street as if, I don't know, maybe I give the impression sometimes that Chameleon Street is the only film that has been suppressed. And of course, that is not true. Uh, uh, there have been quite a few films that have been suppressed. Um, although, uh, I would also quickly say that Chameleon Street has received more suppression than most suppressed films. Uh, I was just thinking as you were talking about a 19... 70, I don't know, three or four. The film that George C. Scott made immediately after Patton, maybe it was 72, it was called Rage. Oh, yes. I'm familiar with this film. Have you seen it? I have. I recently saw it. It is something. You know, that film came out 72 or 73. That thing was suppressed for 30... 40 years, and just recently, it's been, you know, kind of coming back. Uh, So, I mean, there are all kinds of films that get all kinds of suppression, but the one that I would quickly bring up is the film that was directed by Anthony Harvey in 1967 it's called dutchman starring al freeman jr and shirley knight written by leroy jones at the time who a few years later became imamu amiri baraka but that film that film i would say has been suppressed in the same manner, with the same thoroughness as Chameleon Street. And once you see it, you'll understand why. Just like, you know, once you see Chameleon Street, I mean, hey, let's go out on this. Let's go out on this. Andras, you tell me. You tell me. I sound like Monty Clift in <laughs> Judgment at Nuremberg. You tell me. Oh, uh, great. One of my favorite films. Yeah, me too. Uh, you tell me why Chameleon Street has been suppressed on global broadcast television from 1994 until this moment. You tell you. Tell me, as Marty <laughs> said. <laughs> uh, well, I'm just going to go with my first 
the first thing that comes to mind. And I think it's what I was talking about when I watch it. And I imagine that the way that Douglas Street conducts himself in his interactions with power is the way that you conducted yourself in your interactions with power. But as I'm thinking about it, it's I'm really what I'm revealing is the projection that I think probably the, that Hollywood power brokers who were, you know, I'm assuming mostly white, uh, at least the end at, at the highest levels of where the money was coming from almost I'm maybe exclusively white, right. uh, that that's the projection that there is something in the in Douglas Street's character and your portrayal of him that is so uh and this is what I enjoy about it is just so disdainful and arrogant and uh and it's something we didn't even get into but the way that he has mastered so many of the trappings of white culture, not even just in the way in his portrait, becoming a doctor, becoming a, like, but the that he's wearing the Bauhaus shirt and he's talking about Cocteau and there's no, he doesn't wear his blackness in any way that you could like uh, say, oh, well, this is his, oh, of course he listens to this kind of music or he dresses this kind of way or he talks. There's none of those, there's no stereotypes. In fact, it seems like they're withdrawn from it. And so the combination of all of that, I think, must be incredibly intimidating. And then I think also there's, once the crime is done, then you have to commit to it. Once you've suppressed something, you have to keep suppressing it or you have to acknowledge why it was suppressed in the first place. So <laughs> I, I, I hear what you're saying. I agree with all of it. I laugh only at the last part because frankly, the people who are controlling content in Hollywood and then they, they don't even live in Hollywood. The people who could control Hollywood don't live in Hollywood. No way. But uh, I'm laughing because I I think they could care less about that last comment you made regarding uh having to well, admit gee, gee, you know, we've been lynching black people for forty years, a hundred years or whatever. Uh, uh we better keep on lynching them because uh I don't think they care. Yeah, I mean, you're saying uh, what I'm sa- suggesting as the symptom you're saying is is actually the disease, or maybe it's the other way around. But yes. Well, yeah, right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Well, uh, when we made up when we did our initial podcast about Chameleon Street, uh, since then the film has gotten a re-release. I've seen it being discussed. I've seen you doing interviews all over the place. And now we hear that there's another project that's in the works. So even though selfishly for myself and I'm sure for you, uh, you know, I'm, it would be great if you could have been making, you could have made as many films as Steven Soderbergh has made since 1990. Uh, at the same time, here we are. And this film is being 
I, th- I think it's going to be a, a case where as you, as you do your survey of uh, Weekend at Bernie's and Chameleon Street around the world in the next 10 years, many more people who care about film are going to know that Chameleon Street exists and have the opportunity to see it. And I think that's a, I think that is a, a, a profoundly positive and good thing, especially if it means that we get to see the next one from you. I agree with you totally, and I appreciate your commentary and your conclusion, my friend. Radio 8 Ball. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt this show that you're probably enjoying, but I'm comedian Kevin Dombrowski, who you probably don't know. Joined weekly by my producer, Adam, a little bit more well-known than me, Hineker. Say hi, Adam. True. He's got a point. Uh, Dial it back. Each episode, I'll sit down with a very famous comedian that you probably do know. And if they're not famous, you probably know them anyway. And we'll break down what's happening in the world by making fun of all of it. This is Just Joking on the Paperhouse Network. No interviews, no arguments, just jokes. Now, back to your show that you were already enjoying. Dear Listener, If you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Yeah! Oh man, now that, long but great. (laughs) It's long and great. Long and great, <laughs> but just oh, his voice, you know, it's just like the, the fact that he met Orson Welles at a bookstore. I can't imagine what it would be like to be like the person in line behind him. Just yeah. like those booming deep voices talking about who knows what <laughs> for probably a longer than uh, they needed to while people are waiting in line. That will be... Five (laughs) seventy-five. Just man, those—that's such a great combo of voices. Like if only James Earl Jones would also show up, and the three of them with their beautiful voices. You know who also has a strangely low voice is Seth Green. He would be like, does he? Yeah, yeah. He has a. I don't. You don't get that from his acting. Yeah, he he really lives down here. It's it's yeah. Interesting. You don't notice it. It's it's it because no, he, I've never noticed that because he's a you know because he's a wiry little redhead. Yeah, uh, you don't think of him as being having like a Tom Waits inside of that body, but it's in there. Uh, so, but, but let, the, yeah, talk oh, about so many it, just 
what were the highlights for you? Because I have so many highlights from this, but you everyone oh, well, just listened to thing. me talk. So. I mean, well, I think just because he's just a filmmaker that you've never really heard much from or about. So, like, it's all exciting. It's all new to me because I've never seen him interviewed, you know, other than recently, you know, and they did an interview him for three and a half hours like you did. So, like, him going out to try to write for Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> They fucked up on not hiring him for that because who knows what oh my God. magic. Yeah. What magic could have that, like him teaming up with Norman Lear or whatever, like, wow. Like, what would a young version of him have brought to that show? That's that's a great. Um, uh, Negropolis sounds amazing. Yeah. That script <laughs> that, exists. That script exists, and I don't know why you couldn't make it today. I want to read that, and everyone should just pull their money. And make that someone that should get that movie made. <laughs> yeah, because it sounds like a like a more just like hot button racial version of like History of the World Part One or something. Like just it sounds like it has that absurdist yeah. humor, but it more with more uh, you know more stuff to be said. And that sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then his weekend at Bernie's test is pretty good. <laughs> I think that should be for any movie. <laughs> To see this, so if you want to see if you're a movie, if you're a filmmaker, and you want to test it, like, I think because even now, even in 2022, I think there's still people that know what Weekend at Bernie's is just because it's just such a known thing. Like, even people have never seen it. I think that gets into a <laughs> different part of the test. Language. I think his test is about that they both came out around the same time. <laughs> I think you can do about any movie, yeah. you could do Weekend at Bernie's and Touch Citizen Evil Kane, and yeah, oh, well, more people. Would say Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Sadly. No, that was good. That that was a good... And it's good to know that it wasn't... as The story isn't as sad as we assumed it was. That it wasn't like he made this movie. Because I think in my mind, he made this great movie, put everything into it, and Hollywood shut their doors on him, and then he just was like sad in Michigan for 30 years. And being unknown. But it's good to know that at least he, you know, got... To do, try to like do the Hollywood thing of a few years of writing stuff and try. It's frustrating, yeah. But it is cool. It is cool that like there was, you know, there was action. Something he there had an adventure. Action. Like yeah, he I had mean, an adventure. It didn't. Yeah, <laughs> not a total bummer. Like I don't know. Maybe he looks at it differently, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems like he doesn't regret <laughs> uh, that little part of his life. Um, yeah. yeah, and he has definite. You know, I think that he's. He's devoted himself to another work, but at the same time, I wouldn't, I can't, I, I, I didn't get the impression that he was, I, I felt, I'll tell you something I felt a little bit bad about. I felt like I was trying to make it too positive. <laughs> like I was trying to be like, oh, but come on, man. Like I was talking to a friend, like, oh, come on, it's not so bad. But, you know, it's still, what happened but, to him and his film was pretty bad. But we're looking at it now from a place where it's out there. So it's. You know, for yeah. me, it's easy for it to be see it as a happy story. But yeah. he doesn't come across as like the the the, the stereotypical like bitter filmmaker no. that felt like they were owed something and they didn't get it. No, you know, like like it's nice to think that he's, you know, and the fact that he's making these new things that just sound very thrilling and interesting and totally bonkers and yeah, different than any anything that anyone else is trying to do. Like his podcast and his new movie. I hope they both get completed. Well, I'm going to do whatever I can to to encourage and support <laughs> yeah. that project. And if if we know more about it, we'll announce it on the show. 
and let people know if there's uh, like any sort of crowdfunding campaigns they can support or when it comes yeah. out, when they can go and subscribe to it and share it with their friends. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, let's not let this go on too long because it's already, <laughs> who knows, once I put all the clips in here, it'll probably be a, like a five-hour episode. Oh, my Lord. No, it's not going to be a five-hour episode. Yeah. But it, it, I don't know. It could creep to four if we keep talking, which I'm still doing, and I don't know why. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, coming up next week, we are going to be looking at a film by two of our favorite film artists, Jane Campion and Nicole Kidman, in the cut. Uh, who else is in? I haven't seen this film yet, Brian. I'm looking uh, forward to Meg, it. Who else is in it? Meg Ryan, Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, it's good stuff. I, I always think Mark Ruffalo's name is really funny. <laughs> uh, why? Because it sounds like the potato chip ruffles. No, it's just it sounds like. <laughs> It's, Buffalo? Yeah, well, it sounds no, it sounds like a weird sort of verb, turn like he's, like I'm gonna ruffle, like it's like I'm gonna ruffle off to Buffalo kind of thing. <laughs> like I'm, I'm sure ruffle- he's heard it all. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to make fun of his name. It just always sounds funny to me. I always I, for a long time I had a hard time remembering it because because he's such a cool guy and his name <laughs> is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it makes me giggle. Uh, sorry, I'm snor- a giggle and snort. Giggle and snort. Uh, is there a lot? Is that what I get? The, is in the cut a very funny movie? Not at all. Oh, <laughs> it is very not a funny movie. It is an erotic thriller. You know, like it's Jane Campion, so it's you know it's more than that even. So that even to describe it doesn't really work. It so it's sense. like high anxiety, a neurotic <laughs> no. thriller, and erotic oh thriller an erotic thriller yeah might make you feel neurotic depending upon your relationship yeah. to your body and other bodies uh exactly. okay and have you have you seen power of the dog have you seen her sure to be academy award nominated latest uh, not, masterpiece not, not yet it's on the short list i'm working my way through tw- catching up on 2021 stuff so hopefully maybe by the time this episode is out I'll have seen it. Are you worried that something bad happens to the dog? Because let me tell you, it it kind of is. Something bad does happen to the dog. <laughs> you know what? You know what? What happens to it? No, don't tell Di- me. Didn't even get cast in the movie. There's, oh, what? It's just a title only. There's no Je- dog. There's no dog. Oh, f- just like Reservoir Dogs. What a ripoff. Yeah. 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 I felt. I feel the same way about the Shaggy DA. No, there is a dog in that. No, one. there's no real <laughs> DA in it though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> True. Just somebody pretending. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't trust that. I don't trust that dog to <laughs> litigate anything. They should make a sequel where it's a dog who turns into a DA and like just, just have it be like a, a season of The Wire or something. Just have it be like some courtroom politics. <laughs> just dealing with stuff in the city. <laughs> it's and you can expect you can expect hijinks like this when we dig into that. Crazy comedy in the cut from that hilarious uh, master of yucks, <laughs> Jane Campion. Jane Campion. Yep. Um, and uh, no, I, I'm I, I we shouldn't be. I'm making fun because I haven't seen it. Once I've seen it, I'll be appalled by everything I've said. Uh, it's so much easier <laughs> to mock or to make fun from a place of total ignorance. And that's a, that, just remember that, folks, and it'll serve you well. Uh, so uh, at, other things you should remember is that you can find us at 
www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. Every one of our episodes has a page devoted, or every one of the films we cover has a page devoted to it. Uh, this episode will actually be living on the Chameleon Street page with our Chameleon Street episode. And if you have questions, comments, queries, thoughts, interrogations, please address them to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. If you'd like to look at some pretty pictures, you can find us at the World is Wrong Podcast <laughs> on Instagram. And if you want to see some insightful japes and jabs, come find us in, on Twitter at World is Wrong Pod. <laughs> And uh, there's there's not a lot of japing or jabbing, and I don't know how I, how pretty the pictures are. I mean, they're little cartoons of us bopping up and down. Um, but if you like what's what you see there, let us know because we're uh, we're insecure, and you know, and we're not afraid to admit it. So I guess we're not as insecure yeah. as we claim to be. So we're liars. Anyway, with all of that said. Thank you for bearing with us for this very long episode, and I hope that it was nothing to bear at all, that it was as great a joy to listen to as it was certainly for me to participate in. I, I feel quite blessed. So, Brian, you ready to, to get out of here? I'm ready. Okay, well, then uh, it falls to me to remind you folks that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Uh, you know, I, I am looking, frankly, I need to get assistance with people who know how to do you know, add music and all the effects and all the things that make it cinematic. Well, if you, uh, yeah, as you get those materials together, that is what I do. Um, so I'd be, I'd be very excited to explore ways we could work together. Well, I will definitely take you up on that. But let me ask you a quick question yeah. regarding podcasting. Because have you heard of a guy who works out of Detroit named Tim White? He has a podcast. You mean Mike White? Uh, Mike White, yeah. The Projection Booth, yes. I have uh, spoken to Mike a couple of times, and both times I asked him a very simple question. How do you monetize podcasting? And he told me that he has never really been able to do anything significant in terms of monetizing podcasting. Uh, in, in fact, I think a couple of months ago, he told me in answer to once again, me asking him how much money he's making. Uh, I think he is making enough money to actually produce the podcast, but that's it. So 
And then he went out of his way to tell me that he is he has not made any significant money from all the podcasts. And as you must know, since you're familiar with him, the guy has been accumulating. I don't know how many. Oh, no, his is one of the best film podcasts out there. I've been on his show. We've been on his show. And uh, and yeah, I'm and he and I know how hard he like. He that's what makes his show great is that he's not he's not doing it for the money because he he'll read multiple versions of scripts. He goes and does, reads the source material. He yeah, he's he's a he's phenomenal. Sometimes he annoys me, too, because I disagree with him, but uh, on different things. But that's part of being what makes him exciting as a as a reviewer. Uh, he he has his point of view and sometimes I disagree with it. But no, he's there's. Yeah, it, the the tough thing about film podcasts is that there that there are people like Mike who make great ones, and then but it's it's a pretty saturated field, and I don't know, like I could give you a list of other what I consider to be successful film podcasts, like the Pure Cinema podcast. They have the New Beverly Theater and Quentin Tarantino, sort of as a umbrella to support what they're doing but I don't imagine that they're making much money off it either. I think a lot of what it is, and this is how I approach podcasting, is it's, first of all, it's something that I enjoy. Uh, and also it's it's promotion and building up the other things that I do. So the podcast lends value to the, the film. Um, and there, but I don't want to say there are, there are people who monetize this, uh, doing podcasting it's a pretty simple like numbers calculation if you have upwards of 10,000 downloads per episode you can start making money off of ads but what you may find is what you just find as a filmmaker if you if you're the kind of person who's doing really interesting work it's it's hard to get to those 10,000 people if you wanted to do an episode, if you wanted to make a podcast about designer sunglasses, you could probably get to 10,000 people and monetized, you know, and sponsorships a lot faster than if you, mm -hmm. you know, but that's just, that's, um, that's America <laughs> or maybe the whole world. I don't know, but it's definitely America. But it, but it, to, the, the simple answer to your question is if you can get to the point where you are getting 10,000 downloads per episode, it doesn't matter what your content is. You can find people who will start to pay you money. And as you, and then it's just, again, it's just when that becomes a million, those people, those same companies are paying you more to advertise on your show than when you were at 10,000. Cause they're doing ad buys all around, you know, that's why if you listen to a, a like the, this American life or some very big, you know, high budget, high profile podcast, They'll have right. similar ads that if you're listening to a very like some sports podcast that's very local and maybe very niche, it's because that company Squarespace is a, is buying ads on This American Life all the way down to it, down to the lowly ten thousand downloads a, sh a show things, and you just tap. There's an algorithm, and if you your episode does twenty five thousand then you're going to get a higher ad buy. 
So that's the simple answer. Yeah, but the one thing that your answer doesn't seem to answer is why is it that Mike White is not making money hand over fist? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, look here. I know. I just, I just quickly, you know, glanced over uh, his shows. Not even all of them, just a few of them. The first thing I said to him was, "Do you actually have Nicholas Rogue on tape talking?" <laughs> he said, "Oh yes, yes, yes." And all of those people. Oh, okay. You know about him. You've heard about him. You know his work. You, you say he's one of the best. And so you're telling me also that one of the best with one of the most prolific registers of shows can't make any money because it's a film podcast. Is I that what you're saying? Well, no, I'm not saying that because you can look at uh, Karina Longworth, who does the You Must Remember This podcast. Right. And it looks to me, and she does several ads, several ad reads in every show. And, she, you know, and she's featured in, I, I think they did a Vanity Fair feature on her. She's in the, she's managed to make it into something that looks like it's a moneymaker. And I, 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 I have to think maybe it's, uh, I think I'm more like Mike White than like Karina Longworth. And I'm just going to bet that he spends way more time reading and researching the films that he talks about than figuring out how to brand his show and seek out advertisers. And right. it's sort of a self, like it's a self-fulfilling thing. Like if I was, if I was the manager for Mike White, I would be encouraging him to find a way to hire someone who just thinks about that or right. convince right. someone who just loves his podcast the way you and I obviously do and see it as a resource. Someone who would on spec just who's really excited about branding and advertising, bring that skill to it. And I believe that if someone worked for his show for six months doing that, I think he probably, well, he'd be annoying because then he'd have all these ad reads in his show. And it would, I, I one of the things I love about his show is that he doesn't, I wouldn't begrudge him if he did, but uh, I bet he could make money off that show. If he was able to hire someone or find someone who could, focus on that aspect because I just don't get the sense that that's something he is going to ever prioritize. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to be no, seeking I... Nick, Nick. He's going to be trying to find Nicholas rogue that it's hard to, to track that guy down and then to be able to do the research that he does. So he comes to those interviews, not sounding like a dummy and really not, not just to Nicholas rogue, but to you and I as a listener. Like, if we're listening to that, we already know a bunch of stuff. So if he's not bringing something new to the table, I'm going to tune out. And he always does. So, yeah, he's great. I bet he'd love to hear us having this conversation. I'm recording this, by the way. I may just send it to him. Uh, because yeah, go on. he should know how much he's appreciated. Definitely. Definitely so. Yeah. Uh, did you like his ver – I will cut this out if you say no. But did you like his – his uh, episode about Chameleon Street? 
Well, stop recording, please. Yeah, I didn't like it either. <laughs> okay. 